Is you ready, Albert? Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with this is our other co-host. What's up, everybody? I am Drew. Hey, we got a... Well, for today's episode, we're going to continue on with our uh, read-through of... Our monthly read-through of Gundam The Origin, but we've got quite a few bits of other things to go over before we jump right into that. You know, just... uh, to keep things lively and just to inform you guys of little things well maybe not quite so little to us but things that are worth mentioning uh things that we wanted to discuss that are connected to the topic of gundam but well first of all you just told me this uh a little bit before we started the episode drew but this episode today right here right her right now marks the fifth year of between the gutters that's right quite a feat congratulations albert congratulations on five years happy birthday this podcast was a child this is the point in which it would be it would start to go to school and in which i would begin to berate it for being a disappointment to me that's right yeah I, i really can't wait until you become the father to a real child yeah me too I look forward to that moment every day, man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the expression on the kid's face when they realize that they really resent me for birthing them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was looking at our stats and I noticed that we recorded our very first episode. We might not have put it out into the world that day, but we recorded our very first episode on October 21st. 2017 and tonight as we record episode 145 it is october 21st 2022 so somehow uh we have made it to five years it's uh it kind of sucks that we didn't time it right uh we might i might have taken a few too many bye weeks but we could have just crammed five more episodes in there we could have made it coincide with our 150th episode (laughs) well close keep in mind that the first few years when we were podcasting we didn't put out an episode every week that is true that is very true we uh we were pretty lax about it then yeah it was it was basically do an episode whenever we felt like it whenever we had time if we weren't playing video games on the weekend instead yeah 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 I guess somehow the pandemic really made us more productive with our recording. It did. It did. Uh, it it reminds me of that uh, story about how Mary Shelley, uh, because of this global catastrophe that happened at the time, they they ended up being stuck indoors, and as a result of that, she ended up coming up with the story of Frankenstein. I was about that was kind of cool. Yeah, I remember hearing that story. That sounds yeah. familiar. All all it took was a global pandemic that killed millions of people for us to finally get our podcast going. Uh... <laughs> no. <laughs> There's no silver lining here. <laughs> I, I was I was thinking of a joke to make, but I couldn't really think of anything funny, so I'm not gonna try anymore. 
yeah. It's not really the kind of thing that you can top unless you're really committed to topping it. But then there's the chance that you'd just be viewed in the eyes of the world as uh, unfeeling monsters. Yeah. Instead, the world just views us as feeling monsters. We're emotional monsters. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, you know, hey, 145 episodes in, that ain't bad. You know, we are at the point where I wouldn't say we're at the height of what we're doing because there's always more ceiling to go. There's mm -hmm. always more height to achieve. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is our empire, whatever it may be. And, uh, you know, here's to another five years. Here's yeah, to, totally. Yeah, here's to the podcast Reich of 100,000 years, right? Did you say the podcast Reich? Yeah. No? Uh, it, it's got some uncomfortable fascist leanings, the way that you phrased it. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd say uh, uh, nope. I think in my mind, I've always envisioned that the ultimate goal of this podcast would be a fascist takeover of the world. So are hmm. you saying that our goals aren't simpatico? I guess if, <laughs> if your vision of fascism is that every man, woman, and child on this planet has to listen to every single one of our episodes, okay, I can live in a world like that. That's my kind of fascism. I don't know okay. what you were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking that you were uh, going in one of those directions where, kind of like the stuff that we're going to be talking about in our episode later on, but I thought you were going to be talking about how it's time for the old types to perish and make way for the new types, the new types who listen to Between the Gutters on a regular basis. Yeah, you've sold me on it. I, I, I haven't made that connection until you said it just now, but totally sold me on it, and I am behind that idea. Yeah. Don't you know that everybody on Earth is vermin? <laughs> You've got to free them sure from the gravity that weighs down their souls, and the only way they can do that is by liking, sharing, and subscribing to our podcast. Exactly. I'm pretty sure that's always been the theme of our podcast. <laughs> the underlying theme of our podcast is people are vermin, and you better listen to us. Yeah. <laughs> if you've learned anything, it's that. <laughs> so before we cover the this uh, before we cover this month's volume of the origin, we do want to take some time out to talk about pretty big event. Uh, that happened at the tail end of last month. In in between our coverage of the origin manga, back in late September, the Mobile Suit Gundam movie uh, was released in North American theaters. Mobile Suit Gundam, Cuckoo's Doan's Island, received a theatrical release in America, and we were able to check it out. And we've got some thoughts. And the reason why this movie in particular is of interest to us is because it was directed by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. So it's his return to directing anime movie. And as he is the creator behind the manga that we're reading, just thought it would be 
fun to discuss the movie a bit. It's not going to be one of our full-on in-depth autopsies, but we've got a few general thoughts about it, and we're here to share some of those general impressions. And uh, if we do talk about any spoilers, we'll make sure to to warn you uh, if you don't want us to... If you don't want to hear movie spoilers, we'll give you a heads up before we go into that. But for now... uh, we're just going to talk a little generally about the movie uh, before we dive into our book. Yep. I, so, Cuckoo's super relevant. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say I think it's super relevant and uh it fits for you know, the 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 topic of Gundam. So, yeah, I I and I'm glad that we get the opportunity to to discuss it and it just was super serendipitous that the episode came out as we happen to be doing it this year, so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what better time to discuss it, right? Exactly, exactly. So, Kukuru's Doan's Island is a movie that was originally released in Japan back in June of this year. And as I said, it received a theatrical release here in America in late September. So, pretty quick turnaround, kind of surprising because there are definitely some other. Uh, maybe higher profile anime films that come out in Japan. And then we usually have to wait maybe six to eight months before we get a theatrical showing. Yeah. So it's kind of surprising, but definitely very welcome news. And my overall impression was that it was, uh, it was glorious to behold, man. I, I really enjoyed it. had a lot of fun watching it. I thought the voice acting was really excellent a lot of the original cast from the 1979 series reprised their roles uh i mean there are some people that uh had passed away since then but uh, amro had the same voice actor kai had the same voice actor uh thought the artwork was beautiful and it had a just a sweeping score that kind of pulled me right into the adventure of the movie. The music was was great, and there were some new arrangements of familiar first Gundam tunes. So I was, uh, yeah, I was feeling it, man. There's something sentimental and nostalgic about hearing these new arrangements of classic uh, background music from the original show, um, just hearing it in this, in this movie. Kind of... Uh... I don't want to say a cover, but I guess it's a modern take on on these tunes that have been around for a while, and that's always kind of nice. Yeah, when it's good, right? Yeah, totally. A, a a new modern riff on this existing tune that you've you've heard before. Um, but for me, it's completely new because I I've never watched the show, and so I I don't really know which which parts of it were, you know, uh, redone or whatever. But right. all, all in all, it was still a pretty fun movie. I, I I agree that the animation was, you know, pretty stellar. It was an enjoyable experience. Um, I will say that <clears throat> because we're going through the read-through of this book, it did help me to, I guess, watch the movie without having to ask too many questions. Although, I will admit, it's not like the movie in and of itself is 
overly complicated or complex or anything. Right. But, you know, having read it, it does, I guess it doesn't, it doesn't make it so that I have these lingering questions in the back of my mind of what's what, you know, or where I have to leave it to my imagination because reading it. So, yeah. Yeah. You already have a sense of the characters and exactly, uh, exactly. the lore. I have a baseline understanding of it. Yeah, exactly. And and this is just an adventure that, you know, it's kind of like an untold tale that could have happened within the world of the manga that we're reading, yeah. except, you know, it, it was a movie instead. I guess to a lot of people, it's akin to, you know, and I say this cautiously because there are some people who may take offense to the idea of it. It's akin to like a filler episode or something like that where you know you have the main story of everything that's going on but you know because they're fully flushed out characters that are existing in this world occasionally you can tell these one-off stories where they go off and do this other thing and it's canonically supposed to happen in this period of time where you know in between times where things are happening so <clears throat> so this it does really feel like that's the case here where in spite of what we're already reading in Gundam the Origin uh you know I can convince myself yeah they 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 took a break to deal with this one mission and uh mm-hmm. and it just adds to it you know cuz you're just getting more of a sense of the characters you get to exist in this world with just a little longer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I it, can definitely see that. Yeah. It's definitely a heartfelt and classic first Gundam story, and it slots comfortably within the continuity of the origin as opposed to the actual 1979 anime series. I think I've mentioned this in some of our other episodes when we covered the origin, but Yasuhiko, when he did the manga, he did alter different plot elements so that the timeline of events or not the timeline but the uh journey that white base takes uh on earth is different from how it was in the anime because in the anime they kind of just go all over the world they kind of crisscross everywhere and there's no real sense of logical geography whereas in in the manga you can tell that there's a logic to how the how white base circumnavigates uh the earth and this one, this story, you can even place it within the context of the origin because we know that the story in the film takes place after the Battle of Jabro while White Base is on its way to Belfast. So it's like after the Battle of Jabro, but before the Miharu story. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in the in the TV series, they didn't go to... When this episode happened, I don't think they had been to Jabro yet. So like a lot of this other stuff that was going on uh, hadn't occurred. So um, in the mo- in the movie, uh, we've got Slugger Law. He's already part of the crew because they've been to Jabro. But in the TV series at this point, uh, they hadn't fought the Battle of Jabro yet. Uh, Ryu Jose was still alive, and they hadn't met Slugger yet. So, you know, little things like that. Uh, to me, I think because we've been reading the manga, it, it, it made it feel like the movie fits right into Yasuhiko's personal continuity, you know? Yeah, yeah. I get that. And it's not just, you know, the the characters that are there, but 
you can also kind of place the movie based on the characters um the the character's mindset or state of mind uh, mm-hmm. as it occurs so you know i i think it's up to this point reading the manga we we kind of know what the emotional development of each of these characters are and when you watch the movie and you see their behavior at this specific point in time it gives you an idea of where it slots into the overall story um, yeah, you know because it, it really does. Yeah, because the characters haven't necessarily made the kind of peace that they need, or they haven't necessarily uh, come to the conclusions that they ultimately are going to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you think about the CG mecha in the animation? Good man. Um, Again, I, I'm not someone who watched the show. Uh, that Gundam The Origin is my first exposure to the franchise. Well, you watched Iron-Blooded okay. Orphans. I did watch Iron-Blooded Orphans, and when I was a kid, I did watch uh, War in the Pocket. So, okay, it's not my first exposure, but, uh, you know, I, I guess it's my first exposure to, like, the classic... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'll, I'll say that much, right? Yeah. So, uh, it's not a franchise that I have a super amount of love for. Uh, just just because it's not something I really was immersed in as a kid. Mm-hmm. So, I, I would say that any memories of, I have of it are, are are definitely recent than than not. And uh, you know, so having watched watched this now, it I guess I'm at the point where I can appreciate it the most uh, because uh, again, I'm reading the book and I have a sense of you know what the mythos of the series is, and I'm in a place where I can you know really consume it and savor it. Yeah, but I think. The animation was great. The the mech fights are just gorgeous and action packed. It's it's fun stuff, man. I, mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. Yeah, Honestly. yeah. I think for me, as a longtime mecha watcher, I I still prefer the two D style, you know, the hand drawn style look of mechs, but becoming really rare in in modern animation people there aren't enough what what i every time i uh, read articles about sakuga and and you know really uh serious animation people are always saying that uh and by people I'm, i'm talking about people that actually work in animation but they're saying that a lot of the people a lot of the animators who are really skilled at doing 2d mech animation they're just getting really old now, so there's like a a lack of manpower and and people that really know how to do it well. And modern animation tends to rely on these CG uh, mecha, which probably saves a lot of time. It's and intensive. yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's still a lot of work, but it's not. Maybe it's not as difficult. 
uh, in some respects as doing a hand-drawn mech battle. Yeah. But with that said, I actually was pretty impressed by the CG in, in this movie. Even though it's not seamless, because you can obviously tell that it's CG. However, I think because it was animated with... The mechs were animated with real weight and heft and satisfying physics. It worked for me. Like, you could see a lot of those scenes when they were exploring the island and their mecha was walking their feet would kick up dirt and and gravel and leave imprints on the ground and it, it didn't look like it was just a person wearing a plastic costume or something you know it, you could tell that they were heavy machinery and uh you know it, it was just something that was just weighty and i i think that that made all the difference for me it it really worked out and i appreciated how how the mecha action looked even when they were uh battling and in the more action-oriented scenes they still maintain that that sense of real world physics and weight yeah i'm looking at some clips right now and actually just to refresh my memory mm-hmm. and yeah i think the thing for me about cg is usually that this might be funny to hear but it usually feels like the figures that they draw are like too clean and too crisp yeah like, like plastic too- toys yeah, right? Relative to the rest of the world that's around them, they're just a little too perfect. And yeah. Maybe it's it's a situation where it would require a lot of extra work in order to give each of the the CG figures enough grit to make it, you know, kind of blend into the 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 the, the settings and the backgrounds a little more. But mm-hmm. but I, I will say that it's you know just on a technical level it's it's sharp it's clear it's good looking stuff you know and yeah really detailed yeah absolutely and I guess it's like you were saying the 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 process of hand drawn am- animation as as much as I personally would prefer it as well it's it is a, an art form that's slowly disappearing in part because it is time-consuming and uh, labor-intensive, and it is something where it's like you said: the the people that do know how to do it, the the, the talents behind it, just getting older, and the the newer, younger uh, people that are going into it are, you know, their way of doing things is going to revolve around CG. So, mm-hmm. I guess whether we like it or not, it's here to stay, and yeah where i think the one positive of it is as time goes on it's only going to get better like the technology is going to get better but people are also hopefully going to find ways to make it all seamless yeah yeah because i that's yeah agreed because i think back to the anime adaptation of the origin so the OVA series that Yasuhiko directed, uh, you know, like six, six or eight years ago. I forget exactly when he started with those, but he adapted the uh, flashback arcs from the manga into an anime. And the the CG mecha in, in those OVA episodes, it was decent, but I didn't think it was particularly good. Like... 
I think the choreography and stuff was excellent. It was just that the way that the the actual CG in those in those episodes was just like how you described it, where it, it looked like plastic toys. Uh, everything was super clean, and they didn't have as it didn't feel like the weight that they conveyed was as strong as the weight that this movie conveyed. So I, I do think that there are improvements in that kind of animation, especially in just a, a few short a few short years. So yeah. the story of Cuckoo's Dawn's Island is that it, it's actually based on an episode of the original series, episode 15, uh, which is also called Cuckoo's Dawn's Island, I, I believe. But that episode is kind of famous or infamous because uh, Yoshiyuki Tomino, the director of First Gundam, he wasn't very pleased with how that episode turned out. I think uh, it was probably due to the time constraints of the period. You know, they were working on a a weekly show and not every episode is going to be their best work because they're under a time crunch. So yeah. that episode, from what I, from what I know, uh, they, a good chunk of that animation had to be farmed out to another studio. And I think it might've even been a, a Korean studio and it, it just didn't look as good in terms of, uh, characters and Mecca being slightly off model so yeah, for whatever reason, I guess it just wasn't something that the team was pleased with, and Tomino specifically uh, tried to block it from being broadcast in other markets. I mean, it aired in Japan when it, the show came out, but uh, if you look on Crunchyroll now, you know it it's it's not gonna be there. They just skip it over entirely, and when they broadcasted the TV series on Cartoon Network back in the early 2000s. They didn't show that episode. Um, I'm not even sure if it's on the Blu-ray. It, it might be. I, I don't own the Blu-ray, so I, I can't check. But yeah, it's it's a hard episode to find. So it kind of became f- famous and well-known in the Gundam fan community. Um, so it's also pretty interesting to see that Yasuhiko made this movie based on that lost episode yeah i'm kind of curious like what his like why that particular episode maybe well maybe it was just a chance for him to to do it right exactly exactly yeah i'm sure that was part of it um the other thing that i do know is that after yasuhiko finished his run of the manga Back in, I forget, it was either like 2010 or 2011, somewhere around there. Uh, the Gundam magazine that was publishing The Origin, they they wanted to do some more stuff set in the one-year war era. So uh, even though Yasuhiko didn't have any more uh, stories that he wanted to continue in the Gundam universe, they did uh, get other creators to do stuff, and somebody... I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but a younger artist uh, ended up doing a manga about that episode, like an expansion of that episode called uh, Kukuru's Doan's Island. 
and I think that partly uh, motivated uh, Sunrise to to do this movie. I'm not because I'm I'm actually not clear whether Yasuhiko was the one who initiated the idea or if Sunrise was like we're doing a movie based on this story um, because this manga kind of brought it back into uh, the consciousness. And I've never re- read the manga and it's not something that's been translated. So there's no real way to get my hands on it. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that was part of it, even though uh, from what I understand, the movie is not strictly an adaptation of that manga either. It, I think it's more just the uh, probably the name and just the fact that Kukuru's Doan was this obscure Gundam character that had slightly less obscurity because of that story. But anyway, as a movie, uh, I did think that it was just a lot of fun to see our classic favorite characters get their moments to shine. And there was a lot of warmth in the animation, quite a few little bits of comedy sprinkled throughout amidst all the action, tension and drama. Do you have any other uh, general thoughts about the movie or you want to talk a little bit about the story? Um, I mean, I, I guess I was saving it for once we enter, once we pull the bandaid off and just go straight into the spoiler territories. Um, okay. I mean, would you yeah, let's, uh, you want to do that then? That? Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're going straight into spoilers for the movie yeah. now. Uh, I guess if you haven't seen it and you don't want to hear these spoilers, fast yeah. forward a few minutes. I'll try to put the timestamp in the description. There we go. Yeah, so the basic uh, premise of the story is that the white base crew, uh, I think they're trying to... There, there's reports of this one uh, Xeon... Uh, unit that's on this island that they're going to investigate and as they're going there uh you know amuro gets caught up in a fight with uh his name kukuro don Mm -hmm. yeah and as a result he gets separated from white base and white base can't find him and he gets and they get drawn away by the greater war that's happening uh that's that's happening, and as a result, Amuro ends up uh, befriending uh, Kukuro Doan as well as this small community of, I guess they're orphans, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, this small community of orphans that Kukuro Doan has taken under his protection, and it's yeah, it's it's just this story of how. This one soldier, enemy soldier, ends up kind of, he ends up basically being an army of one unto himself because of the terrible things that he's done. He just decides, uh, because of the terrible things that he's done, he, he decides that he's not going to um yeah he he i don't know if it's like an official uh renouncement of his people but you know he he for all intents and purposes decides that these kids 
and this island is going to be the thing that he focuses his energies on. You know, it, it's part of it is this act of redemption on his end for all of the innocent people that he's killed. So it was a pretty, it's a pretty, it was a pretty moving scene. Uh, you know, uh, all the scenes that we get of him having those flashbacks and you know, just his reactions to all of the devastation that he caused. And he, you know, in, in any war story, uh, fortunately, your characters are going to have to do things that they don't necessarily want to do. I mean, that seems to be the running theme of uh, a lot of these Gundam stories is just that war is hell and you do what you have to do, not because you want to do it. Yeah. Those are consequences that you live with because, you know, it's survival, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's a good story to see him, to see the, this adversary. Because, again, we're so used to, like, the Zabis or Shar. Like, we're not really accustomed to seeing someone from uh the the empire as well th- i guess there's rambaral we do kind of uh yeah i don't know if we like root for him but we we respect him he's sort of portrayed as the noble zeon soldier yeah yeah but i guess it's good to see more of that because Kura's Doan is yeah he he's a guy who did some bad stuff but he lives with that and he's making up for it every day. And, you know, I wish I could say that about most people. <laughs> <laughs> I wish most people tried as hard as he did. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. But saying that, I will say, uh, you know, this movie was pretty upbeat for, you know, Having read as much uh, Gundam Origin as I have read up to this point, um, getting to that part, getting to the end of it, and, and seeing just how upbeat, even optimistic the ending was, there, yeah, like I, I think it subverted my expectations of it because, well, most war stories think our brains have been trained to expect that everyone's going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or not everyone, the people that you care about the most ultimately end up being the ones that do die. Definitely. But, but this was a, an ending where, you know, Kukura's Doan and Amuro, they don't end up having to kill each other. But on, on top of that, they stop uh, the Xeon Empire from, obliterating mass chunks of the planet in you know in missile strikes and then they end up defeating the bad guys and and in the very final end sequence where you you just see everything in in uh in 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 painted form as opposed to having it played out within the episode in the end credits um 
what you see is it, it ends on this note where all the all the orphans on the island do end up get to they do end up getting to live happily ever after basically mm-hmm. as a family all together and uh yeah i think that's again for for all of the grimness and the uh depressing subject matter for that for to end on that note was it was good you know it was it was a good contrast to the series and uh i guess it's fitting because we are coming to the end of the series and even now even having read it uh as i'm reading it to you know getting closer and closer to the conclusion of it there's a part of me that in the back of my mind feels like we're getting to that point where we're gonna start to see people just go you know yeah yeah Yeah. i mean i could be wrong i don't know so maybe they do get a happy ending yeah i'm I'm not gonna spoil it for you i just want you to discover it for yourself yeah but uh, Yeah. yeah i definitely agree with what you were saying one of the things that I was thinking too, when you mentioned the end credits and how they showed these still shots of all the characters or all the orphans and people yeah. uh, on the island, like I, I don't know if Yasuhiko himself drew those, but that really did remind me of his art style. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it was it was really nice. Like if they had put those in an art book or something, I would totally eat that up. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the painted stuff in the book. Yeah, exactly. I'm, that's that's why I was wondering if if he did those himself or if it was just an artist working on the movie who was re- able to kind of imitate or pay homage to his style. Yeah. Because it it really did have that Yasuhiko feel to it. Yeah, it right down to the watercolor like texture. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the 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 quality of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and just the overall warmth of of the stories told in each picture. Yeah, I remember me and you talked about it, uh, you know, after we watched the movie, and yeah, uh, the, I think we both had the same general expectation that oh, someone's gonna die. Um, you know, like they're Kukura's Don and Amuro are both on opposite sides of this, um, whether they like it or not. And, and we obviously know Amro's not going to die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is which is quite an emotional rug pull on some level. Yeah. Like whether you like it or not, uh you know, whether you've uh, come to the point where you've bonded with this character of Kukura's Don, um there yeah, there's this sense that this guy is protecting orphans and uh, you know, he he's another like noble soldier guy, and but if he gets in the way of Amuro, wh- like I can't, you know, wh- what else am I supposed to root for, right? <laughs> yeah. Although apparently there are people who don't seem to get that and are perfectly willing to root for, you know, the worst characters <laughs> or the worst kinds of characters in this series. Right. But, right. Um, but hey, whatever. To each his own. <laughs> <laughs> But for them to make it work out uh, so that, you know, they both survive and they both end up getting, well, you know, Amro goes on his way to to continue his story, but at least this guy gets his happy end, you know? 
Yeah, definitely. And it is a pretty great take on that concept of the noble Zeon soldier. Yeah. Because, the, the, uh, like we were saying a few minutes ago, the other character that comes to mind is Rambaral. And it, I guess with Rambaral, he comes across as that noble soldier because he has that sense of honor and he doesn't necessarily align with... He doesn't align with the Zabis, but yeah. for whatever reason, it's not like he quit the military and went to do his own thing, you know? Like, he's still kind of doing what they're telling him to do, even though he doesn't really like it. Yeah. Whereas well, the, the... I think that's the thing that makes him kind of tragically noble, right? Yeah. Is that he's, he's dedicated to his nation. Exactly. Even, even when it's uh, a detriment to himself and his own personal integrity like he yeah he's he's committed himself to the idea of this nation through good and bad unfortunately and unfortunately they're at a point where they're at their bad peak right yeah 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 it's a tough place to be yeah it really is and the contrast between him and a character like Doan is that Doan witnessed his side committing war crimes and he not only walked away completely, but he even goes so far as to sabotage Zeon's further attempts to commit even more atrocities. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's like levels to it, right? Like Doan is, it's, it's still kind of weird to think of him as like a good person because I'm not sure. Women. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not sure if he, I'm not sure if he just witnessed his side killing all those innocent people or if well, he actually did it himself before he realized what he was doing. But that's that's definitely got to be a hard thing to live with, especially when you have a conscience. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of those situations that sort of like, do you really think the Hulk is going to go rampage and no one ever gets hurt? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Exactly. I'm, I'm pretty sure he killed a bunch of people. <laughs> like all those buildings he destroyed downtown, those skyscrapers. <laughs> it's a good thing there was nobody in any of them. It's a good thing that they were all abandoned and ready to be torn down anyways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was pretty surprised, pleasantly surprised to see this movie subvert my expectations with that surprisingly optimistic ending though. Yeah. Yeah, like it didn't feel like it was a letdown. It, I didn't feel upset, robbed by the fact that, oh yeah, they 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 got a happy ending out of it. Like, it yeah, I wasn't mad that they didn't kill any kids or anything. Yeah, <laughs> which is weird because usually that infuriates me. <laughs> Not enough child death. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I, I mean it's it, Finding Nemo. I expected there to be tons of dead kids. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just the fact that Doan and all the kids survive, but I really like the symbolism at the end too, because Amuro has that line to Doan after all of the action happens, where he says something like, "I I don't remember if this is an exact quote, so I'm just gonna like do my best with it, because I've only seen it that one time, you know." But he says something like. 
the stench of war lingers around you, drawing all these battles to you. And then he, he throws Doan's Zaku into the sea. It's uh, it's very cathartic, man. It's yeah. just one of those poetic moments that kind of symbolizes... Symbolism. Sure. Yeah, it, it's just a beautiful, beautifully done scene. Really great ending. Yeah. And then at the very end, when White Base does a flyby over the island, and we get a shot of Doan and the kids working the land... It's pretty potent stuff, man. It's like that idea of a hardened soldier turning his sword into a plowshare. It just becomes even more meaningful in in the context of the movie and in the context of Gundam's general, you know, anti-war messaging. That's it's just a beautiful image. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, and and I think the movie also works as a microcosm of the first Gundam story like it it's one of those things where sometimes when you make a movie based on a TV series the temptation is either to just do a an alternate telling of the entire story of the entire series or you do a compilation of the series or you do a sequel or a prequel right so this idea of of doing an expanded uh episode essentially it's pretty clever way to pick what kind of plot you want to tell you know obviously has challenges because you know the hero isn't really going to die if if that's the kind of thing that uh you know keeps audiences at the edge of their seat but to me it works as a microcosm of the whole story because this movie is all about the tension between domesticity and living a normal life in this case a normal life would just be like a civilian life of being a farmer and, you know, living in peace, trying to live on your own, being self-sufficient, caring for the people around you. Yeah. And and all of that just gets uh, torn apart by war. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's pretty much what we see all throughout Gundam and probably not just the original Gundam or the origin manga that we're reading, but generally speaking, like, I think that's, most Gundams, if not all of them. Yeah. And yeah, it just it just worked really well in a singular movie. Like, I think it was slightly less than two hours. So it's, yeah, it was just really well done. I think uh, it's something I definitely want to watch again. Yeah. I was going to say, like, it was an interesting experience for me because though I was aware of the fact that this was, this movie was based on this episode that they had made. Um, I I really it did leave me sort of it left me curious about what that original episode was like because the movie that we did have seemed pretty well put together and pretty flushed out and it's hard for me to imagine what the condensed version like well it's not Okay, it's not hard for me to imagine. I'm I'm curious what they took out, or rather what they added to fill it out so that the uh, episode ends up being, what did you say, like an hour? Yeah. Or something. Yeah, I'm pretty curious myself. Yeah, right? Because it's, it's a lot of material that they had to put in there to, to make it longer, but now it just leaves me 
curious to see what the stripped down version of it like and how they covered those same ideas and themes if they covered them at all yeah agreed yeah if i can ever get my hands on it i'll let you know there was something funny too about seeing some of the flashback scenes animated in the movie like the the bright slap yeah <laughs> that whole yeah. scene it, it's kind of a one of those things that has become a meme in in uh Animation. on twitter online and stuff and I, I do remember when they showed that scene in the movie people in our theater were chuckling <laughs> gonna say one of the things that did dig about it was you know the that they were consistent with showing uh, Amaro's emotional state and how it sort of fits in right where it fits in right where his headspace is at in the book where Mm -hmm. you know after you know a few successes in his Gundam he begins to experience a form of post-traumatic stress where yeah you know he's doing what he needs to do and he's good at it but the reality of it is that he's just a normal guy who's you know just straight murking people left and right and you know regardless of how good you are at killing people uh i think for most normal sane people that's the sort of thing that takes a toll on you um it's mm-hmm. the sort of thing that you have to harden your heart against especially under the circumstances of war mm-hmm. so we do see that with amaro in the movie where he's dealing with something um even though he's just trying to put on this tough front and um the one scene that i really remember is when when those uh soldiers come uh, the zone soldiers that that the zeon soldiers yeah zeon soldiers that that elite troop i don't even remember i think they were called the southern cross okay yeah when the southern cross show up you know to to uh get these missiles to so that they can you know nuke a whole bunch of the world um two of the members end up going to the missile silo the underground missile silo to to investigate what's why the missiles aren't aren't responding to their commands and amuro you know he's doing what he needs to do he needs to make sure that these two get stopped and (laughs) he he sneaks around he gets into his gundam unit and he messes up one of the Gundams pretty badly. One of the other enemy mobile suits. Oh yeah, one of the enemy mobile suits pretty badly. And then one of the guys, he's unfortunately for him not in his suit at all. So he's like running and he's trying to get back to his suit. And you just watch Amuro as he squishes him. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why I'm laughing, but well, I you you laughed during the movie too. I laughed during the movie too. I did. <laughs> the thing was there was something about his reaction as he's in the process of stepping on this guy like the way that they show it is you don't actually see him like you don't see this blood stain or anything like that you just see the guy running and you see the Gundam unit uh you know you see its feet moving and then there's a close-up of Amuro's face as he's just like wincing because 
he knows he has to do this. Yeah. Because what else? What other choice does he have at this point? This guy is an enemy soldier, and if he gets to his unit, uh, it's just going to be that much of a harder fight for him. So, you know, he he's like tearing up and and like almost sick about what he has to do, but then he just squishes the dude straight up. Yeah. It's, it's a rough scene, but yeah, I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> there's always one scene in most of the movies we end up watching where there's an act of unexpected violence and it just causes you to laugh hysterically yeah i don't know what it is about it but i i don't know i think it's it's akin to that it's a similar effect to whenever i see someone get punched in the balls yeah i I think it's it's that it's it's something similar to that yeah, I there I could go. see that. <laughs> yeah, but I I thought that was a good character moment that they kept in for Amuro that was just consistent with his uh character development over the series. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. That's definitely classic Amuro. All right. Any uh final thoughts before we move on to our book discussion? Uh, just that, yeah, it was a fun and enjoyable movie. It's something I'd recommend to all of you. And, um, you know, if you didn't, it's like I said earlier, um, me reading the series right now does, did help me to have a more seamless experience, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary. But, you know, seeing as how we're doing a podcast on the series, uh, I guess I would recommend that you read the series and watch the movie, but you know, if you just want to watch the movie, then you can do that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just think you're, you know, you're, 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 you're doing harm to yourself in that sense, but Hey, however you want to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said. All right. You ready to get down to brass tacks? I am not familiar with that term, but I'm assuming you're asking me if it's time to start the book discussion. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> that's that's more or less what I was saying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't mastered all of the idioms of the English language, so there are bound to be some things that I haven't heard before. Well, you know what they say. A higgledy-jiggledy-jew. They say that? They don't. I, I just... I was just coming up with stuff. Okay. I was, trying to, I was trying to flummox you. You didn't quite flummox me, but I was a little bit bewildered. Good enough. I'll take it. Okay, okay. So, this week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam, The Origin, Volume 10. This volume is titled Solomon. As always, it's written and drawn by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. And translated by Melissa Tonica, published by Vertical in the USA. So to give a brief recap of where we left off in the the last volume, essentially we got to a point where the battle's all built to a head, and the the most significant thing that happened at the end of volume nine was that Sela and Shar came face to face and 
essentially had, uh, you know, kind of a heart-to-heart emotional conversation. And it ended with them parting ways, but Kai was able to sneak around and basically overhear everything that happened. And he goes back to the white base and informs Bright of what's going on. And, uh, you know, it's it's pretty shocking news to learn who Sela truly is. Uh, meanwhile, Amuro, he had been, or the Gundam had been damaged in that battle. And uh, fortunately, I think physically he was okay. So that's sort of uh, where we are at this point. Do you have any other uh, general things that you want to say before we get down to our chapter-by-chapter chapter recaps? No, I think that was a good summary. Yeah, we're good to go. And, you know, if anyone wants to really dive into it, there's always the episode itself. So we Mm-hmm. All right. So, as usual, we'll recap each chapter and then provide our commentary. So, for some reason, I'm not exactly sure why, but this book starts with Section Zero uh, okay, instead of uh, Section One. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Yeah, Maybe I, I had imagined that, like, this was the first time that I had ever seen it, or maybe I just hadn't been paying attention. But I did see that, and I was like, huh. Yeah. That's kind of different. I wonder if it was because this chapter might have first appeared uh, not necessarily in the main magazine the story was running in. Maybe it showed up as a bonus or something. That's the only thing I can think of. I don't actually know. I I don't have an explanation for it. Yeah. But anyway, it doesn't really matter when we're reading the collected editions. So... To begin with, it is now December of 0079. We start with the scene set in Solomon, the stronghold of the Xeon Space Attack Force. Dozel is in a video conference with Giran and Cassilia, demanding reinforcements because the Federation is preparing to attack Solomon. Giran is in the main Xeon Space Force's headquarters, the fortress known as Abawaku, and Cassilia is at the Xeon base in Granada, one of the main cities on the moon. Both of Dozel's siblings make assurances to provide him with limited aid that they that they claim should be enough, but Dozel is furious at what he perceives to be their indifference. Meanwhile, White Base is docked at a space station for repairs and resupply. It gives a chance for Amro to recover from the previous battle while a team of techs and engineers rapidly work to repair the Gundam. While he's in the infirmary, Fraubo stops by to check on him. After a little bit of small talk, Amro says out loud, I wonder, when was it that we stopped talking to each other? Frau is taken aback and tries to play it off by answering, We've both had so much on our minds before swiftly moving on to his medical report. The conversation gets serious as Amro brings up the death of their comrade Danny who died in the last battle. Eventually, their conversation is interrupted by the arrival of Dr. Mosk Han, a giant of a man who also happens to be the chief engineer leading the Gundam repairs. He takes Amro to where his people are working on the Gundam and explains that they're dismantling it and replacing the parts in order to upgrade the mobile suit. 
The section ends by showing us the Federation getting ready to attack Solomon. The third fleet, under the command of Rear Admiral Watkin, will serve as the vanguard of the attack. Vice Admiral Tianum and his second fleet are holding Granada in check, but also have Solomon in their sights. So, this chapter was a lot of setup. What did you think of it, Albert? Um, well, I think the two main things, or, or the two main takeaways that we get are, one is the introduction of the Doctor, who's going to make these changes. Uh, what's his name again? Han? Dr. Han? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, he's, this is, like I was saying earlier, this is us coming close to the end of the series. We're on book 10 at this point. We've got two more volumes left after this. So, you know, this is the point where after the last battle where the Gundam got super messed up, time, you know, it's the, the point in the story where we do the, the, the montage scene or whatever, and it's like, okay, you come back better than ever, baby. Yeah, it, I think it's a pretty common trope in in these kind of stories where the the main hero's mecha gets an upgrade before yeah. the season ends. Exactly, exactly, and so that's that's the one big uh, one of the big things here. But the other more subtle thing was the scene that you described between uh, Amaro and Frabo, and mm-hmm. although it doesn't really go into it too much. It, it does feel like we're getting a peek at more of Amaro's development or emotional development as as everything progresses. And this is kind of a new, different uh, iteration of Amaro that we're beginning to see peek its head. And yeah, it's it's curious to see what it's going to look like when it manifests, what what it's going to be, you know? What do you think is new about how he's reacting to things or people now? Well, you mentioned earlier how in the Prisdome movie, uh, Amro at that point was, he was really much, very much just a green soldier uh, getting accustomed to the idea that in war, killing people is something that you have to do and he's he's still navigating his feelings of like grief and I guess for better lack of a word disgust at at the the act of killing itself mm-hmm. but there's something almost detached about his behavior here you know the way that he just talks about the people that have died, the 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 like mm-hmm. almost cold way that he interacts with Frau Frabo. Like, yeah. I I don't want to give away too much because we're eventually gonna get to it when when it comes to a head, but mm-hmm. it does feel like there's something different in his response here. There's yeah. Something new. Uh, like bubbling beneath the surface of psyche. Yeah, I th- I think it definitely does set up that scene in the later chapter that we'll get to. 
the other thing that uh stands out is all of the developments with the with the Xeon forces and the yeah. discussion of strategy and and you you do get the sense of uh the even the politicking games being played between the siblings where Girin and Cassilia they kind of give lip service to Dozel about helping him defend his fortress but uh yeah you can kind of tell that they don't really care <laughs> yeah I mean, that's actually in these situations where 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 war is happening uh, at some point life just becomes numbers to you and well not to you but you know to to these people who are in charge right and mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the cold callous thing about it is their ability to look at it so objectively and to write off <laughs> these deaths because hey, it's a it's a means to an end, right? Yeah. And, and talking about it now, it it uh, there is this interesting parallel between their behavior and kind of what we're seeing out of Amaro too, you know? How so? Again, just this fact that he's becoming Old and heart-hardened. Mm, the detachment uh, from oh. human life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right? Maybe he's not at the level where he's, um, you know, making plans or strategies that affect hundreds of thousands of people, but, you know, he's down there in the muck. Like, every person that he kills, it does a little more to shave off that part of his that part of him that cares right yeah it's 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 hard to say but it's it's almost like you kill that first person that you kill and you might be devastated momentarily or for who knows how long but as time goes by and as you're forced to do it more and more often eventually you know that that nerve begins to rub itself pretty numb and yeah the idea that it's hard to say this but the idea that it becomes easier to some extent is uh it's not hard to imagine you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah man you got anything Nope, I think you summarized it very neatly. Those are very close to my own thoughts as well. So we can move on to the next chapter. So section one. The Battle of Solomon has begun. We open with some scenes of Federation gyms and balls skirmishing against some new Xeon mecha. I forget the name of the mecha, but it's something we haven't seen before. It's a mecha we haven't seen before. They're fighting at the edge of Solomon in what appears to be some kind of asteroid or debris field. Within Solomon itself, Dozel spends some time with his wife Zena and their baby Mineva in a rare scene of domesticity. It is a moment of calm before the storm. White Base, which is still docked at the space station, prepares for the assault. Bright briefs the crew on the mission. Kai makes a wise-ass remark and Slugger adds a bit of logical reason to back up Kai's point. 
Bright says that the Gundam will not be part of the attack as Amro is still technically recovering from the previous battle and the gun the Gundam is still undergoing upgrades. Elsewhere on the space station, Dr. Mosk Han gets into an argument with the corpulent businessman who owns it. Even in the midst of war, greedy people are out to profit by playing both sides. Amro comes to Amro comes by to check on the Gundam, and Dr. Han explains how the experimental upgrades will significantly boost response times. Amro's not too keen on the Gundam being used as a guinea pig, and the two of them also get into a shouting match. At the end of the chapter, we see a contemplative Dozel wake up in the middle of the night and regard his sleeping wife and baby, even as he understands that the battle is going to intensify very soon. Thoughts, Albert? I like how you described that scene of domesticity as the calm before the storm, because even as I was reading it, there's this sense that it's such a pleasant little moment between uh, Dozel and his family that in my mind and in my in back of my mind and in my You were mind, just bracing for them to die. Exactly. <laughs> it's like what better way to set it up than like just you know, it's him and his adorable child and his lovely wife just, you know, in the throes of being a happy family. Like what more can you do to set set up like the tragedy of what's about to happen, you know? Like I don't need to be gifted with future sight or telepathy or anything like that in order to tell where I think this is going, you know? It's mm-hmm. it's pretty mm-hmm. pretty clearly telegraphed that this is about to go badly for him. You know? Yeah, yeah. There's that whole little sequence where the baby, his baby Maneva, is just playing with his face, and it's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. It's it's sweet. It's too sweet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just not gonna last. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't remember if it's in this section, uh, but I think there's even a point where he's talking with his wife, and she's asking about, you know what are the odds that they're going to come and get to us from here in Solomon? And he's like, oh, we're a fortress. There's no way that they can get through us. Yeah. Down to us, you know, which, you know, again, famous last words. Yeah. Yeah. It's like right after she asks him, uh, are we really safe here? And he's like, you don't need to worry about Solomon's defenses. This is an impenetrable fortress. The very next page, he gets a call and he's like, huh? They snuck up on us. <laughs> and then she's like, did I hear what I just heard? <laughs> yeah. He is not looking good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing about this section is you see this, uh, you know, they, a couple of things. Uh, they kind of explain the science between what's, uh, what Dr. Han is doing to uh, the Gundam, mm-hmm. which Again, this is another example of, uh, well, again, I'm not super science, scientifically inclined, but the way that they describe it, it does paint a pretty, it's a pretty simple and easy description to follow where it's like, oh, just based on the loose science that they've described, it's, you can kind of tell yourself, 
oh yeah i can see how that that would make a gundam faster and better yeah uh, essentially their explanation being that with a lot of gundam units their joints are are physically touching each other so there's always going to be some degree of friction that slows it down but by putting this magnetic coating on and you know using these magnetic fields now the joints aren't grinding against each other when they move and they're essentially like hovering in place and that allows it to move almost friction without friction and to move exponentially faster at least that's my understanding of how the science went yeah that was my understanding as well okay okay. i don't know how uh feasible that is or if that's like if that adheres to any real laws of physics but as far as the fantasy of the fiction goes yeah i can buy into that yeah well i mean i believe that levitating hover metal is going to move faster than, you know, gears and cogs that are actively grinding and screeching against one another. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why not? Yeah, exactly. Um, the other takeaway from the scene is when Amuro, you know, shouts at Dr. Han about how he doesn't want him to experiment on it. And uh, Dr. Han's response to him is, aren't you kind of being a cheeky little punk? Because what makes you think this is yours all of a sudden for you to come out here and, you know, claim this as yours? Like, you know, this is military property. You're, you serve at the behest of Federation, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is a little bit more of that evolution that we're seeing in Amuro as he finds... I guess you could say his confidence and his determination and he really takes ownership of the Gundam and his title as a gun or his status as a Gundam pilot. He's very possessive of it. Exactly. Which I don't feel like we've really seen that level of possessiveness from him up to this point. Yeah. There's a, splash page on page 55 where amro is standing in front of the window that overlooks the gundam being repaired and he he's just uh protecting it and saying or he takes this product he, he adopts a protective posture and he yells at dr han and says if you want to take the gundam from me by force go ahead and try it's mine all right what's wrong with that <laughs> and the funny thing is is when i looked at that page i just imagined some guy some Gundam gunpla enthusiast who loves plastic model kits and he doesn't want someone to touch his toys. <laughs> <laughs> He's just stomping his feet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's actually a scene right before their conversation that I that stood out to me. Um and it's the scene on pages like 40 48 and or 48 to 50 where Dr. Han is just walking in the hallway and he he meets the owner of the space station and they just have this little uh, argument because the guy's upset that the that the Federation is using all this electricity to repair the Gundam. And Dr. Han just points out that, uh, you know, this guy is just a businessman. He doesn't care 
about anything other than profits because it wasn't too long ago that he was helping Zeon and now he's helping the Federation because of a contract. So it, even though it's just a small minor scene that doesn't really have any real consequence, I do think it it jumps out because it it just harkens back to that idea of people who have power just, you know, wasting it or abusing it. And, and there's always going to be these greedy people who are just out to... They're parasites. Yeah, they're parasites, exactly. There's a, there's a war going on, and, and they're just playing both sides so they can yeah. make more money. There's something, there's something gross about that. But I do think that it's a thing that inevitably happens in these situations. Yeah, it's, uh, it's that's definitely based on real life. Yeah, it war is never welcome or a good thing, and when it does happen, like it, it unleashes the worst in people in multiple ways. It's not just the fact that people are committing heinous acts of violence towards one another. Like the fact that there are these opportunists that see this as a chance to enrich in themselves. Like, yeah, I don't think that that's something we think about quite as much. But, yeah, it, it's definitely a thing. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, okay, I guess I'll, I'll go into it a little bit. but it, Go into it. Yeah, go into it, man. Yeah, it it reminds me of the news that happened recently where uh, there's a war in Ukraine that's going on, and one of the things that's been helping them a lot lately is the fact that um, Elon Musk and company, I forget which which one of his companies, but uh, they're basically supplying the Ukrainians with these servers that allow them to uh, the internet like high speed internet out in the battle zone. And mm -hmm. basically uh the news that's been coming out has been that allegedly uh, okay, initially he he gave the Ukrainians access to these servers and been helping them a lot on the battlefield, but allegedly uh there've been some friction between the Ukrainians and Elon Musk and kind of came to a point like a couple like a week ago I think where he essentially announced that he was gonna he was gonna rescind uh, the use of these uh, this access to high-speed internet for the Ukrainians mm. and you know there's there's I, I definitely acknowledge that this was something that he did initially as an act of goodwill and kindness for you know in 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 the name of like assisting the Ukrainians, but um I mean the the bits of news that came out was that well one he did this poll where he he did this Twitter poll that essentially said that, hey, you think Ukraine should just give up large 
amounts of their territory to Russia to end this war. And the foreign minister in uh, Ukraine was like pretty offended by that poll that Elon Musk put out there. Yeah. <laughs> Why is he even doing that? that? Did you hear about that, Drew? Uh-uh. I actually don't follow Elon Musk on Twitter. Yeah. I make it a point not to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I was pretty whatever about the guy, but in recent years especially, uh, the more that I've known about him, the more gross he seems to be. <laughs> like... Yeah. Yeah. Like, I... Yeah. So, so um, when they... When the Ukrainians called him out on this, you know, a week later for him to go, uh, oh yeah, this is costing us hundreds of millions of dollars. We're we're thinking of shutting this program down for you guys. Uh, what ended up happening was, I forget what the exact exchange was, but his essential, essentially his Twitter response was, I'm just doing what you guys told me to do, which was, uh, in that earlier tweet, you guys told me to f off, so I'm effing off. Was basically what he was saying, which is pretty petty. It's know? pretty petty. Yeah. So, again, it's a thing where it's like, I commended, I I commended the initial act of giving them, uh, you know, access to this thing, but for him to have that level of power and, you know, to try to hold them hostage with with the use of this technology there's there's something pretty gross about that yeah the good news is though uh i think the i don't know if there was an actual like uh oh what's the word not uh, not flashback what's like a uproar uh like i don't know if there was an actual uproar but Uh essentially what Elon Musk did was he rescinded his uh, initial rescinding of that. So <laughs> the the Ukrainians, at least for now, are still having access to these uh, this high speed internet for the time being, anyways. I'm sure he wants them to feel in his debt, like he's being super gracious to them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does seem like he's that kind of a guy. Yeah. Anyways. Okay, let's move on to the next chapter. Section 2. White Base leaves the space dock and heads toward the battle while Amro, Frau, and the orphan kids remain on the station. It looks like the engineers are almost done with the Gundam. When they run a test of the new systems, the Gundam goes haywire and wrecks a bunch of equipment and injures some people. Dr. Han has to disconnect the power, but he gets vaulted by the feedback. Oblivious to the chaos, Frau brings a meal to Amro in his room. Amro's in a sulking mood, and Frau's not having that. She says that he's gotten full of himself, thinking he's special, even when everyone around him is working just as hard. They get into the kind of hurtful, emotional argument that only close friends can have. Sela opens the door, with the orphan kids in tow. She chides Amro for taking out his frustrations on his old friend. Amro is still feeling aggressive and tells Sela she's hard as nails. In light of the revelation of her true identity and relationship with Shar, she's still scolding them as if nothing is different. Amro tells her 
that if he meets Shar again, he'll kill him. Cool and collected, Sela replies, be my guest. Omer interrupts the uneasy moment by rushing in and telling everyone about the Gundam's accident. A very ragged Dr. Han, as he's being taken away in a stretcher, tells Amro that despite the mess, the experiment was a success. Sela offers to help Amro get used to the upgrades by going out in her core booster for a mock dogfight. It's a fierce battle, as everyone else observes on the view screens in the, wa- in the space station. Amro feels the increased speed of the Gundam and feels empowered to take on Shar himself. So, yeah, this was the chapter with the moment between Frau and Amro that I think we had alluded to when we uh, talked about the first chapter of the book. So, yeah, you, yeah. you want to say a few things about that, Albert? Yeah, it's this is the point where it really just comes out of him, uh, just this sense of detachment about it. And he's snapping at Frabo and everybody where... I don't know I don't know if it's it's him feeling his confidence it it, it might be overconfidence of anything the, the sense that he's overcompensating for whatever guilt he's had or, or whatever and he he's almost gone in a completely 180 of a direction where he's convinced himself that, you know, if it's my job to kill these people, then I have to feel nothing when it comes to them. And that's really how it, it comes out, you know? And for him to just kind of snap at Bravo and Zayla and just let them know and know in certain, certain terms, um, you know, our people are going to die, but people that you care about are going to die too. Your brother, Shar, I'm going to have to go out there and it's going to be me or him. You know, it's it's a pretty harsh reality that he's internalized. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not, not a therapist or anything like that, but it'd be curious. I, I'd be curious to see how someone would analyze that behavior like what what is the i guess yeah what what's what's what what would you determine is his state of mind in uh in in this moment you know after mm-hmm. everything he's been through what what is his what is this response um yeah yeah it's pretty emotionally complex because this does feel it's not that it feels out of character from him in the sense that he's not being written correctly, but it's more like what you were saying where like he's been through so many things in such a short span of time that of course that's going to affect his personality, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like he, he's still who he is, but it's, it's like you were saying a reaction to, yeah. to those feelings, right? Like, yeah, like exactly. It's not out of character, but it, it almost makes, a perfect sense that once you get to that point, once you cross that threshold of Yeah, of course he's going to act like this. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, he's spent all this time dealing with the harsh reality 
of death in war, what what what's going to happen? What what is his coping mechanism essentially? Right, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this is what. Like I don't know if he knows it's a coping mechanism, and but that's how I'm reading it. Is this is him telling himself what he needs to tell himself in order to continue to function. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that's necessarily healthy either. But but mm. hey, I th- I think I think we can say. It's unhealthy. Yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> you don't have to be that diplomatic. <laughs> well, I mean, I was going to say that the thing, is, the thing about war is that these are circumstances and conditions that really no one would ideally have to put themselves in. So there is no real way for someone to come out of this uh super healthy like at, at least not at first like there's there's going to be some period of time where a person is going to have to like process all this and work out what their feelings are but you know in the theater of war you don't really have time for for that because you know Every every moment is a life or death scenario, and it really, what you do in that moment really is contingent on your ability to put yourself in survival mode and kind of put those feelings to the side, if only momentarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and looking at this scene, I I do think uh, reading it from Frau's point of view adds an extra dimension to it because they do have that long-standing friendship, and I think it's pretty clear in the subtext that she's got a crush on him, or she had a crush on him from the beginning of the series. She's always cared for him, Um, and then like there's this this is the moment when she's the only one who's who knows him well enough and i guess is probably brave enough to tell the truth to him essentially and like she i think it's fair to say that we may not have a a psychologist on this episode to kind of break him down but i I feel like frau breaks him down for us on the page where she tells him straight up you think you're so special and it's gotten into your head you're so full of yourself. You think there's nothing you can't do, but everyone's working so hard. It's not just you. We're all doing the best we can. Yeah. Like all this stuff, it, it kind of just leaves him speechless while she just goes off on him to the point where she, she feels so, uh, I guess, passionate or emotional about what she's telling him that she starts to cry. And then all he can say is, Girls are so unfair. You think you can win every argument by crying? You think you can fix everything just by cooking and being nice? And that's like probably the meanest thing I could have thought of to to say. It's so dismissive. It is, man. That's messed up. I read that and I was I was mad at him. <laughs> <laughs> and 
going to mention, even just the way that they draw him in these scenes, there's a smugness and an arrogance to him in his demeanor and his expression. Yeah. It's just, it's, that is something that I don't feel I've seen out of Amaro up to this point either. Just, it's so subtle, but it's, it's interesting that just by drawing him that way, just how much more that communicates of this shift in his personality. Yeah, totally. Like when you start reading the scene on page, starting on page 71, just seeing him with that posture, the way he sits on the chair with his, yeah. his, uh, like the side of his jaw leaning against his right hand and the way he, uh, just leans on the chair on page 72 on that top panel. Yeah. Like it's just the posture and the body language that, that communicates his demeanor you know like he's yeah. it's exactly like you were saying he's just detached and dismissive of of her and smug it's yeah. it's uh yeah it's it's different like it still clearly the same character but the way that that uh yaz draws his posture and it's like just great acting you know yeah yeah and i was gonna say like just looking at that the, the thing that crossed my mind as I was watching these scenes, as I was examining his body language, was he actually kind of reminds me of Char in these moments. Mm. Just, again, with that condescending sense of smugness and detachment. And I don't know if that's what they were intending, but that's... That was an idea that had crossed my mind as I was watching it, as I was reading it. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense because I do think that they work as foils to one another. Yeah. And, yeah, and I guess that's that's an interesting play on their dynamics, even even though, you know, they're not necessarily interacting with each other here. Um but because, like you said, because they are foils to one another and they're both responding to these things in different ways, um, I guess it does it does ask the question of what does Amuro, what what has to happen to Amuro for him to get to the place where he ends up being like Char, you know? Mm. And and this might be the closest that he gets to that. Or I don't yeah, like I I'd have to think about it a little further, but I it, it's almost like playing with fire, right? It's that sense of Amuro really if this is what Amuro needs to tell himself in order to like make it through the end of the day. What's the end result? Well the end mm-hmm. result is he becomes sociopath like Shar. <laughs> yeah 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 so yeah it, it's it'll be interesting to see how it plays out as the book uh progresses as the story like you know speeds towards uh end mm-hmm. yeah i also want to point out that the way that yaz draws frau in this whole scene is pretty great too like just the progression of emotion on her face where she starts off being stern and then looks angry and then as she keeps on as they 
as they you know yell at each other as the tears start to come out it's it's pretty heavy stuff yeah yeah like especially that first panel on page 76 that's that's a moment where it definitely feels like he said something to hurt her yeah and then i'd even say um in the following pages when sela enters the room you know, just speaking about how we uh, mentioned Amro and Shar being false to each other. I think one of the things that the the flashback arc in the earlier volumes also showed us is that Sela and Shar act as false to one another too. And there's this whole scene where it starts off with Sela, you know, scolding Amro, and there there's a a way that you can look at her and you can also see that similar kind of confidence that Shar has when, when talking down to somebody where, um, you know, she, she, or he tells her that, uh, next time I'm going to kill your older brother. You okay with that? And then she just kind of smirks at him and says, be my guest. But then after that panel, there's these two panels where they just stare at each other. And that second panel where you get a shot of Sela's face, there's a sweat, a little bead of sweat coming down her uh the side of her head and uh i don't know i feel like that alone just conveys this sense that she's not necessarily as as cold as she tries to portray herself at times yeah like there's this kind of sense of uncertainty that's just it's unspoken but i think reading into the art i think that's what we're supposed to pick up looking at that scene myself and yeah it it does definitely feel that way and it's interesting to see Amaro's response too because he has that same beat of sweat as well so it's almost like she calls his bluff and in that moment Asad cracks a little where yeah she she might not be as old as we think but I think this is a moment where Amaro sees his own reflection and really has to ask himself, is that really what I think I am too? Yeah, that's a good point. You know? Like, is this all just big talk? Do I really do I really believe this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Good Any other comments on this chapter? think that was good all right let's move on to section three elsewhere char's ship approaches cassilia's flagship as he boards her ship and gives her a face-to-face report char is accompanied by lala soon after some pleasantries cassilia dismisses everyone else so the two of them can speak in private as they go over some strategy there's a meaningful moment when Cassilia reminds Shar that she has no love for Girin. Shar presents what he believes is the Federation's plan. He says that the Federation plans to take Solomon so they can use it as a launch pad to meet with Revel's main force and attack Zeon itself, the only logical target after Solomon. Shar and Cassilia both recognize that she and Girin could send their forces to save Solomon, but both are holding back for their own purposes. 
At the end of their session, Shar tells Cassilia that he's quite enjoyed this exchange between two masks. It's not explicit, but Cassilia also seems to hint that she knows who Shar really is. Back on the space station, a transport prepares to take the rest of the white base crew members and the Gundam to meet back with their home ship. Dr. Mos Khan bids farewell and Amro thanks him. Meanwhile, battle continues to rage around Solomon. Dozel is not happy that it appears he's been abandoned. He sees his family and tells Zena that she and Mineva will be leaving Solomon to head back to Zeon before the battle gets too crazy. White Base is doing its part to damage Solomon, and there's a scene where a Federation higher-up notices and appreciates White Base's contribution to the fight, even while condescendingly dismissing them as rats of Luna 2. Solomon is a hot zone, and Amro's transport can't get too close. Bright still has Sela on probation, so she can't take him out on her core booster. Fortunately, Slugger flies to their location in his core booster and offers Amuro a lift. Amuro makes his way back to White Base's hangar, only to find a damaged gun cannon and a couple of damaged balls. And that's where that chapter ends. Thoughts, Albert? Uh, I guess this is a good section for progression of the... I guess the uh, the strategy and and the politicking that's going on. I, we're not really seeing any emotional development here, but it, it is something that pushes the plot along. We're seeing the the different sides form and mm-hmm. uh, you know the different power power centers as they begin to shift and move towards. Um, you know the the various players within within this chessboard, this three dimensional chessboard, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I'm. Uh, when you talked about Casella and how you know it might be implicit that it's not implicitly said, but she might actually know who Shar is. I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it, but I guess that does make sense. Shing is seeing as how she is the Xeon's like information, uh, you know. Yeah, she's got a spy network. Yeah, she she's yeah exactly like her her entire character uh, archetype is supposed to be. Kind of the sneaky, uh, you know, master of spies or whatever. Right? Yeah, and she gets all the information. So yeah, it sort of makes sense that she would have this in her pocket. Yeah. Plus the other things that make me think that she might know, or at least suspect, is that in the f- flashback arc, she was. She was the Zabi who knew him as a kid. Like, so there's a, even though he's wearing a mask now, like, yeah. just knowing the way that he acted towards her, even when he was a kid and, you know, she was threatening him, there was something in that I think that stood out to her. Like, she's not, she was not going to forget that. Yeah. 
And and then like when you look at pages 107 and 108, at the end of their conversation, Shar, uh, he has that smug comment to her where he says, "What fun, milady!" And she's like a little confused. What is? And then he says, "This exchange between two masks, I've quite enjoyed it." And he has this, you know, the typical Shar smirk. And then when you look at the next page, she uh, says, "You sure know how to talk like an adult now." Shar, but the Shar is in quotation marks. Yeah, yeah. So it, it it's it almost feels like she's thinking back to that interaction that they had when he was a kid, and he was you know talking back to her, and she was an adult at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that scene. That was a pretty well done scene, just of uh, like. It always makes me think of something like Ender's Game, where the kids, even though they're kids, there's something menacing about them. Yeah. You know, nonetheless. And that was that was a great moment where I get exactly what happened in that movie, but I think it was him talking to her and essentially showing like just how fearless he was to her, right? Exactly. Yeah. He wasn't afraid at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it'll be cool to see how this uh, this chess match ends between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And then there's more stuff where, you know, we're seeing the attack on uh, Dozel's fortress on Solomon play out. And mm-hmm. Again, <laughs> you know, we're just at this place where. <laughs> I don't need to be a, a fortune teller or anything to know that this is this is gonna end badly for him. <laughs> yeah, there's that one uh, giant panel on page 120 where he's kissing his daughter. He says, "Wait for daddy, Maneva. Good girl, such a good, sweet girl." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. It might as well have been like, "Hey, what's this?" We've got a basket full of puppies and kittens, too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Section four. As Amuro contemplates the damaged mecha in White Base's hangar, he's alerted that an incoming friendly craft is coming in too hot. He needs to clear the hangar. Some Xeon mecha are chasing a damaged ball. Amro flies out and makes short work of the enemies, and Slugger is impressed. The ball crash lands in the white base hangar. Hayato was piloting it, and fortunately, he's okay. Well, maybe his pride was hurt by having to be saved by Amro again. On the bridge, everyone is wearing a normal suit. They're in a combat situation. Mirai asks Bright if she noticed, if he noticed the difference with the Gundam's new magnetic coating. Bright says that he didn't, and that he doesn't care, and that if the higher-ups are relying on new types or psychic powers, then they're in for a world of hurt. But if Amro is improving as a pilot, he'll take it. Some distance away from the main battle, TNM and his second fleet are assembling a new Federation weapon called the Solar System. Even though it's only at 85%, he can't afford to wait another 10 hours for completion, so he prepares to use the weapon as is. The solar system fires and deals intense damage to the fortress. 
White Base is about to begin an all-out assault of Solomon. Traveling through the corridors to get back to the bridge, Mirai runs smack dab into Slugger. Amuro, in the Gundam, watches Solomon burn from the solar system's attack. Thoughts, Albert? Yeah. So, kind of get a lot going on here, just in terms of battles and stuff, but not to not to lose um, some of the little personal moments that are going on between here. Um, you know, like watching Hayato kind of deal with his insecurities and you know the fact that he's chasing this dream of someday being as good as Amuro but he just can't quite get there you know mhm mhm um in addition to that there's also like this little moment between uh, who is that Mirai and uh Slugger Slugger yeah, that's that was a good little moment where it's intimate, you know. Just it really feels like I don't, I don't know I don't really remember like what the whole dynamic of their relationship up to the this point was like if it's been building up to anything, but. You know. Well, remember in uh in the previous volume when they landed at the uh other colony? Yeah. She met her uh, fiance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Slugger punched that dude. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, and then and then right. when they were leaving before they left, he slapped her. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I don't know, it just goes to show that under crazy circumstances, all sorts of things happen. Like it, it's sort of that idea that when the world's coming to an end, maybe anything goes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds know. like you're hoping that the world will come to an end so that we'll find some women. <laughs> uh, I don't think I'm that optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a part of me that thinks that even if the world was coming to an end. <laughs> We'd still get rejected. <laughs> I was going to say, that is pretty optimistic on your end to think that even the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then there's also, uh, you know, the scene with this solar system weapon where this wasn't something um, that I, I I remember them talking about, but it does feel like as as uh, the series, you know, gets closer and closer towards con- the conclusion, we are seeing just new weapons of war uh, just being utilized and created, and that's that's something that's true to life too. Where, um, you know, it makes me think back to World War Two, where towards the end, all the governments of the world were just throwing money at whatever they could in the hopes that whatever new piece of technology is going to be the thing that helps them finally put an end to the war. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, res- they're, they're researching all sorts of uh, avenues for 
devastation, whether it be, you know, chemical, biological, um, you know, yeah. weaponry. So, so the fact that, you know, the Federation has this giant space cannon thing, um, it all makes sense, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that World War Two comparison is intentional. I mean, this fortress is even called Solomon. And one of the major campaigns in the Pacific Theater was the Solomon Islands campaign. That was one of the places where the Allies uh, fought to capture so that they could, you know, make progress towards Japan. Yeah. And that's essentially the same thing that's happening here with the Federation. They're trying to capture Solomon so they can get closer to Zeon. Yeah. Yeah. And for them to create this ultimate weapon of, like, devastation, <laughs> it, 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 all, it all lines up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, and... and I have to say, with all the stuff that's happening, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fan of uh, the Xeon or or anything like that. But there is a part of me that, watching what's about to happen to Dozel, there's a part of me that's like, oof, you know? Yeah. Out of all of them, out of everyone in their ruling family. He's probably the one that I hate the least or that I, <laughs> I dislike the least. <laughs> and, and again, maybe this volume especially has gone to links to, you know, manipulate me or endear me towards him just because he has a family or whatever. But <laughs> yeah, um, but even compared to his siblings, he doesn't have this. He doesn't have nearly the same level of guile as they do. He doesn't have their guile, and he's nowhere near as despicable as they are. He's still bad, I guess. But yeah, I think there's a part of him that's sincere. Uh, From a soldier's point of view, at least he cares about his men. Yeah, exactly, right? And he... he I'd even go so far as to say that he cares about like his family more than his than Cassilia or uh, uh, mm-hmm. the other brother Guerin. does. Guerin does. Yeah. So and again, just because you love your family, that doesn't necessarily make you good. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very important to note that <laughs> there are a lot of monsters that love their family. You know, good for them. But but it sh- it shows that he's at least capable of some form of humanity. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah. You got anything? I guess that scene I mentioned with Bright early on, that was something small, but it, it stood out to me. That scene where uh, Mirai asks Bright if he noticed the difference with the Gundam's new magnetic coating. And he basically says, no, and I don't even care. And, the you know, people can call them new types or whatever, but if we're relying on psychic powers, we're in for a world of hurt. And I just hope the higher-ups aren't feeling so desperate for real. 
But if Amro really is improving as a pilot, I'll take it. Like that's a moment where I don't know. I just think that's a good bright moment where he he doesn't care about all this other stuff that's happening above his pay grade. He's just he just works here, man. He's just doing his job, and he hopes that the people under him are getting better at what their job is. He doesn't care about the semantics of it all. He's just if we win, if it helps us to win, then yeah, that's the thing that I care about. Exactly. Exactly. It is. It. It is a good soldierly moment, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of a, a pure moment. Yeah, yeah, and I think he does get quite a few underrated pure moments like that in this volume. All right, section five. Solomon is burning. Dozel sees Zena and Mineva one more time as he sends them away on a Blue Cross transport. It's a sad final goodbye from a man who understands he is about to die, but one who also vows not to die in vain. Back on White Base, Hayato is so zealous to return to the battlefield that he's willing to get back into a damaged ball. Kai, in his gun cannon, snarkily points out what a dumb idea that is, but Hayato feels a competitive spirit knowing that Amro is out there fighting in the Gundam. Slegger's core booster takes some damage and he needs to return to White Base for repairs. Bright has noticed the rapport between Mirai and Slegger and uses a private channel to let her know that she can take a break. She goes down to the hangar and finds Slegger eating a burger in the ready room nearby. And just as a side note, there's some amusing graffiti in the pilot's ready room if you look on pages 188 and 189. I saw that, yeah. Mirai tears up just seeing that he's okay, and they share a poignant moment together. She tells him not to die, and he says he feels unworthy of her. But before he goes back into combat, he gives her a ring that belonged to his mother, asking her to hold on to it because he wouldn't want it to get lost in space. As white bases rocked, Mirai falls into him and they share a passionate kiss in the lower G environment before he gets back into his core booster. The chapter ends with a scene that shows us that from Granada, Cassilia's flagship issues reinforcements, but they are obviously too late. All right, so this chapter, I think, does a good job of capturing the frenetic chaos of war and just all of the complex but primal emotions that are flowing through the characters in the midst of you know this life and death battle situation that they find themselves in now the characters it's interesting to see uh just you get this peek inside their heads and how they're how different characters are feeling different ways about certain things with Hayato and Mirai and Slegger. Yeah. I like it, man. Did you have any particular thoughts? It is kind of, uh, uh, I guess microcosm would be the word where even though all this other stuff is happening, this higher level where we tend to focus on main characters of, you know, Amuro and Char and, Egwin or whatever, like 
for us to take a moment to see like how the how some of the smaller side characters are responding it it adds i guess a layer of reality to it right because mm-hmm. war affects us all from those all the way at the top to those all the way at the bottom of of the food chain and it absolutely makes sense uh that or or i think it's a cool technique to take a snippet out of all of these characters and to put it in this section just so we get this sense of what everybody else is going through uh while while all this is happening mhm that's really well done yeah yeah, yeah, even the characters that don't really have too much presence in the chapter, just like a couple, they only show up in a couple panels. Like I'm thinking about Kai, like he only shows up briefly where he, he says, you know, he says his smart ass remark to Hayato, but there's definitely a lot of truth in what he's saying, right? Like yeah. he's making fun of the, like number one, the mecha that Hayato is about to pilot is damaged it's busted so kai just questions why he's in a hurry to die to by going out in a busted thing like that and then even then just regarding the object as a as a whole it's like he says looks like they just stuck some guns on a service pod for the ultimate budget mecca (laughs) it's a flying coffin more or less what do you even hope to and then he gets cut off because hayato yells at him but then it's like true right like that thing that Hayato's piloting, it doesn't even look like it can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just looks like one of those, it looks like like a mining vehicle. Like it's supposed to, it's got these little arms. Why does it have these little arms for? What's that for? What? Yeah. Like it's not going to fly up to Zaku and like <laughs> rip it apart or anything. It looks like it's to move little meteors out of the way or to mine minerals from an asteroid or something. You get lucky, maybe you'll trip one or something while it's yeah, out. yeah. <laughs> and the military just puts a gun on top of it and says, "Okay, it's a fighter now." Yeah, but that's kind of the way it is. Um, I I also think that that's something that comes from real life. Like when when war happens and people get desperate, uh, you know they they do the best they can with what they have even if it means using something that isn't necessarily effective but yeah but you just put a big gun on something (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah i also do like the moment between slugger and by there it's they dedicate a lot of pages and a lot of panels to to it yeah it's I don't know, it's touching stuff between these two characters and maybe maybe Slugger's a little too cool. You know, being that guy who who's uh you know, almost feels like he has all the right things to say to make you just kind of look up to him as mm-hmm. as uh just a a generally cool dude. But it works, you know. It makes me uh yeah, it makes me like him as a character. Yeah, yeah, it's a good scene. And I I do think that the way that uh just the way it's paced where it feels like 
the scenes uh before in this in this chapter are like so so quick right like there's they're also so such fast-paced scenes and then we have this extended scene just between these two characters it makes it it really heightens the meaningfulness or the significance of their interaction together yeah and, then, and of course it's also one of those oh sorry what you say oh go ahead i was i was just saying uh it's also one of those moments where i'm i'm sure it triggered your spider sense when he gave her the ring yeah. it's like uh he's gonna die yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, all, all of that happens, all, all of the, it's like you said, all these panels happen in quick succession, and it builds up to this one page where it's just, you know, them floating in space and having this pretty intimate kiss with one another, or, you know, he goes off, and, you know, he says, he has this Han Solo moment before, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. it uh, you know, for those of you who don't know which one I'm talking about, it's it's the one in uh at at the end of Empire Strikes Back where Han Solo is being taken away, and uh, the story that I love behind it is uh okay, so the scene is Princess Leia is like I love you, and Han Solo as he's being like taken away to get frozen, uh he, he just goes I know, and I think the story that uh, the story about that line from how I remember it was it wasn't actually a line that was written. It was just kind of an ad lib that uh, mm-hmm. Harrison Ford did, but it works so well. Yeah, know? it's perfect. Captures yeah. his character. Yeah. Shall we move on to the next chapter? Do it. All right. Section six. Slegger launches in his core booster and the battle is raging all around the space fortress. The Federation is making a concerted effort to go for Dozel's command center. Hayato provides cover for, for some attacking gyms, but takes a stray shot and starts going down. Chaos reigns, but there's a moment in the narrative that acknowledges that even in the midst of the death and destruction, there is something beautiful. That's on pages 211 and 212. Dozel prepares to sortie in the Big Zam. Gotta love those Gundam names. <laughs> Zeon's latest giant mobile armor. He gives the command to abandon Solomon, acknowledging the bravery and valor of his soldiers while blaming Girin and Cassilia for letting 10,000 faithful men and women die as they played their games. Back on White Base, we find that Hayato has survived. He's in triage with a bunch of other wounded. Fraubo is taking care of his injuries. She offers him words of comfort, but Hayato just feels pathetic. He wanted to compete with Amuro, but Frau tells him, Amuro is something else. He's just not like us. The section ends with the Big Zam making its appearance. It destroys a bunch of gyms and balls as easily as Amuro and Slegger look in awe. Dozel plans to use the Big Zam to attack the rear Federation fleet.
Thoughts, Albert? Yeah, I, I think it's consistent with what I was saying earlier. Um, in this volume especially, it really does feel like the the ante on new technology is coming at us pretty fast and pretty quick. Um, you know, we have the the solar, what's it called? The solar uh, system. System. Earlier on. And there's also the change to the game itself. And then there's this big exam. And there's another like canon that they reveal, uh, you know, where they convert one of the space colonies to a canon later on mm-hmm. in the book. So it really does feel like this volume is one that where they ratchet up the speed in which we're just getting newer and newer tech. I mean, on on the one hand, it's fun to see sci-fi technology, but like I was saying, where as as wars get more intense, as they escalate, um, you know, governments tend to get more innovative but it's an innovation that's born of desperation in some cases where they're just trying whatever they can and you know investing tons and tons of resources into getting that one bit of technology that might be the thing that pushes them over the edge to winning this war and, yeah and, and again as as the war escalates they you know and as they get desperate it really does feel like there's more of an emphasis placed on just getting something out. Yeah. On, on, on that off chance that it's the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's also something terrifying about how the technology just keeps getting more effective at killing more people. Yeah, yeah, right? Um it almost feels like earlier on there's this sense of restraint maybe right but as as the sides get closer to winning and losing just more of this intensity put into it because hey uh if, if this is the difference between winning and losing then we just need to like do whatever it takes, even if it means, even if it means that we got to kill a whole lot more people, right? Mm-hmm. We're even seeing that now, where uh, the initial uh, or the initial way that war is carried out is they start out with these attacks in the hopes that they can preserve something of whatever they're taking over, but you know, as it intensifies, it just becomes this thing where, well, I don't even want to preserve this thing anymore. Uh, like it just—it's just about winning at this point. So, yeah, it becomes this scorched earth. Yeah, uh, yeah. I—I I think it's a pretty accurate representation of uh, that aspect of war. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and yeah, and I'm watching this scene here where Dozel is writing. What's what's it called the big 
the big zam big zam i i gotta say the big zam does look cool it's kind of funky looking it's kind of like a giant giant oyster with legs or something but yeah it does look cool i do like it (laughs) yeah i like it too it's for something that has such an odd design like i'm not sure what the practical use is for those legs but it it looks so alien chorus line (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah chorus line (laughs) but it yeah it it just looks so alien that it it adds to that menacing scary kind of feel which is appropriate because it's just causing this mass destruction destroying all these federation mobile suits and slugger and amro are just like whew man what is that thing freaking huge yeah um there's also that moment with hayato and uh is that frau yeah frau yeah i don't i'm i'm not really sure what to make of it because i guess it is weird to think of hayato wanting to compete with Amuro, or I guess envisioning himself on the same level as Amuro. Like, I have no idea where he got that idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I think it was, I think it was uh, something that harkens back to like the very first volume when, when uh, they were like neighbors on the same colony. You know, they all went to the same school and stuff. Yeah. Kind of hung out in the same group. And in, in the flashback arc, there was yeah. that one scene where they were hanging out with Kai and some other people and they all got caught. So they always had like, uh, they were always in like the same friend group and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I guess he was just, I think there were some scenes earlier on too where he was trying to be a better soldier. Like I, I remember that early volume when, when uh, Ryu Jose kind of took yeah. him under his wing and he was learning how to be a soldier from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember that. He, Hayato was one of the guys that was more driven than yeah. anybody else in their friend group. That was definitely a thing that I do remember about him. Yeah. But I guess I just never, I never, I never pictured that as, you know, him being in direct competition with Amuro or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I guess it makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I still don't think it makes sense because they're, it's like she said, he's something different. They're, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, like, he's not like us. Yeah. It's, you know, you, you think to you, he's your, he's your, you're, you're his Lex Luthor and you're, he's your Superman. But to, to him, you're like. Toy man. Uh, Silver Banshee. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, sure. All right. Okay. Moving on to the next one. Section 7. Dozel commands his forces to abandon Solomon and tells his soldiers not to die in vain. He even goes so far as to command the rest of his subordinates in the Big Zam to leave and escape with their lives. We see Zakus and Doms towing Zeon soldiers with numerous ferries and transport vessels escaping Solomon as explosions surround them. 
Slugger chooses not to shoot at the helpless retreating Xeon soldiers. As they retreat, the Xeon soldiers salute Dozel in the Big Zam, which, which then heads towards TNM's fleet and the solar system. The Gundam is too slow to catch it, but Slugger offers Amuro a lift. TNM's ships fire a long-range beam barrage at the Big Zam as it streaks towards them, but it's to no avail. Dozel closes the distance and unleashes the Big Zam's cannons, destroying numerous capital ships, including TNM's ship, as Amuro and Slugger helplessly watch. Slugger continues to fly them towards the Big Zam, and he is intensely resolved to destroy this new dangerous enemy. The Big Zam sees them and damages the core booster, but Slugger sacrifices himself and flies the core fighter right into the Big Zam's underside, dealing major damage. Amuro aims his beam saber at the Big Zam's core, and Dozel exits the cockpit to shoot at the Gundam with an assault rifle. It's obviously a futile gesture, and the Big Zam explodes, taking Dozel with it. I think it's also notable that this sequence is in color, even though it's in the middle of the chapter, which is a little bit unusual. Yeah. We cut to a brief scene with Shar on his flagship. He has picked up Zena and Mineva. It is clear that Solomon has fallen, and he takes Dozel's family to Cassilia. In the aftermath of the battle, Amro is on the bridge of White Base. As Frau, Sela, and Kai stand with the rest of the bridge crew, Amro confirms to Mirai that Slugger has died. In a daze, she stumbles off the bridge, sobbing. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off there earlier, Albert, but uh, you were going to say something? No, I, I thought... You were done with your description, so I thought you were making a comment. <laughs> so that, that's why I was responding to it. Yeah, no, it, it's you're right. It's it's pretty unexpected for them to put the color sequence right in the middle, but it's just well, I have no other way to put it, but it's just like an awesome like battle sequence that I I, I have a feeling they knew what they were doing. They were just you know yeah. giving the people what they wanted. Yeah, that that was definitely intentional. Yeah. Yeah, like this is this section has got to be the coolest fight scene or or the coolest section of of the battle. So, you know, we got to color it. Yeah, Yaz knew what he was doing. Yeah. It's a scene that it gets some callbacks in other Gundam shows and I like I don't think that's a spoiler for you, but it's it's a pretty famous moment that I think other Gundam shows do pay homage to and it's yeah like there's something pretty i think even in the fandom like that's a scene that that uh stands out to people like if you watch the the movie adaptation of of uh this section of the story it's it's a pretty intense scene like there's just something um like even with the the voice acting and the the guy who plays dozel's voice like he did a good job and it's just one of those things where the dude the character it's a pretty hopeless battle <laughs> where like what's yeah. he going to do with a gun <laughs> against the mobile suit <laughs> yeah but yeah he doesn't care <laughs> he'll just he just keeps firing anyway it just made me think of uh like the wrath of khan that that one scene at the end where you know khan's 
on a on an exploding ship. He's about to die. But, you know, in his final moments, he's just like, with my last breath, I spit at thee. Mm-hmm. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, such a good Moby Dick moment. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. But, again, this is just a reminder that we're we're coming to the end of this because people are beginning to drop like flies, you know? Yeah. Ozil's dying, and then we lose Slugger, and that's yeah. Here, here's that's, a question I was gonna ask. Punch, man. <laughs> yeah, I was I was gonna ask you. Did you think there was something funny about Slugger flying a kamikaze into the Big Zam's taint? <laughs> I did, because <laughs> it looks like it's just it flew it right. I wasn't gonna say taint. I was gonna say it like it flew right into its butthole, but whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there was something funny about that, but yeah, it's funny that that's the weak point. <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's kicking kicking the giant oyster with legs right in the balls, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty brutal death scene, though. Like the way that they show his uh, ship exploding in slow motion and like the use of multiple panels to show that, yeah, that's his body uh, flying into the thing. And uh, yeah, it's not like he ejected or anything. Yeah, yeah. I was also going to say, uh, or ask rather, there's a scene where I might have been confused when I was reading this, but I was under the impression that Dozel thought his family had had died, or or is that wrong? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, was there a line of dialogue that made you think that was what he was implying? No, I. Well, I'd have to go back and look for it, but uh, that's something we can talk about later. Like, yeah, because uh, I think the pr- one of the previous chapters had him sending his family off in the Blue Cross ship. So he, he, I think he just assumed that you know they're escaping to safety now, and yeah. he's just gonna make a final stand. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it might have just been something I misunderstood or misinterpreted. But mm-hmm. even, even again, even though. I, I I can't say that I'm a huge fan, or that I am rooting for the Zeons here. Um, watching Dozel, like, you know, make that last stand. There's back to the idea of the noble Zeon. Like, that's there is something about that, right? Where mm-hmm. you know. It, Where, again, like we mentioned, um, you know, out of all the people in that family, at least he cares about his soldiers. You know, yeah. even if we, we can't say that we believe in his cause, um, there there is something in him that's more admirable and more human than, and more caring than, than Casilla or urine yeah and i guess it's just a shame that war makes these people they could be otherwise 
good, noble people. It, it, it's a waste of their lives because this he could have been. He kind of fits else. that archetype of being that lovable goofball if he weren't, yeah. you know, a fascist military leader. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, right? Like, even the way that they draw him, and, you know, even in his more tender moments, uh, it's like you said, there is something kind of endearing about him when you take out the fact that he comes from a family of fascists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. People are complicated, man. <laughs> Ready to hit the next section? I wanted to ask you what your overall thoughts on Slugger Law are as a character. think they obviously introduced him to be you know kind of one of the one of those cool guy characters right even mm-hmm. even early on when he disappeared very much you know in a world where all of the pilots and a vast majority of the uh crew are made up of these kids these teens or whatever and uh, they've just and and even aside from just being teens, like the majority of them are also just civilians. Uh, all of a sudden, we get this one officer guy, just kind of embodies everything about what it means to be a cool soldier, right? Mm-hmm. He's got a good head on his shoulder. All it almost feels like he always has the right thing to say. He always does the 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 cool thing. It's you know he, he's just kind of the idealized version of what a Federation soldier can be, and he's not inept. He's not uh not corrupt. Uh, so <laughs> it's a shame to see him go. Uh, I guess I guess that's that's where I stand on it. Did you see in his character um like did you think that he was kind of this uh stereotype of machismo or the kind yeah, of absolutely. you know typical masculinity that Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean we we talked about that in in last episode. Yeah. His behavior is just so I hate using this term but like alpha where <laughs> you know? wait if you hate using it why'd you use it because i don't really have any other description for it you know but oh, okay uh, let's say assertive then that he's like there you go ideal. so you got a vocabulary okay he's he's the ideal like assertive leader um even even when he does something that's you know quote unquote toxic there's there's an element to it where it's like yeah but in in certain situations sometimes you wish you had a leader that could take the reins like that even if it means smacking the sense out of you or smacking mm-hmm. the sense into you you know mm-hmm. um it's not necessarily the most politically correct or sensitive thing but 
there are times again uh, where you need someone who can shock you back into reason when when it feels like all hope is lost or when you feel like you are in a place where you're incapable of seeing reason you know mm-hmm. yes yeah. yeah to some degree maybe it is toxic but again people are complicated and sometimes you need these types of just harsh realities but yeah yeah i, I think you're right he he does kind of embody that stereotypical machismo archetype i mean just look at him he's just such a you know square jawed uh cowboy i feel like he was designed to represent the stereotypical american Uh, now that you mention it i could imagine i could picture that yeah yeah like he uh a cowboy isn't he he's got a cowboy hat (laughs) (laughs) yeah he he's he's a character that i think a decent chunk of the gundam fandom is kind of down on because of that sort of toxic masculinity that he can represent i think so yeah I i feel like most of the time when i see like either tweets about him or just even other podcasts i I feel like usually he's more he's a character that takes more criticism than praise and i I think a big chunk of that is because of how he's portrayed in the anime whereas i think the the manga might be a little bit more uh maybe toned down or forgiving of him because like I'm trying to think back to when I first watched the anime, and I, I was kind of young, so I don't think I really paid too much close attention to characters that could have had women. Yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> he just slapped her. So <laughs> is that really that bad, Albert? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, somebody's gonna take that out of context, and I'm gonna end up regretting it. <laughs> this is a joke. Exactly. We do not condone any of this. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely feel like the manga re rereading the manga now for the podcast, I feel like it's given me a new appreciation for the character cuz now I I feel like I see his his uh the kinder side and the noble side of his character, you know? Like even just noticing little things in this final battle where or his final battle, where he's just kind of, like on some sense, he's just terrified of this new weapon, the Big Zam. And he's he's willing to, um, you know, sacrifice his own life in order to destroy this new weapon so that they can't keep on using it. Because he's seen firsthand the amount of destruction it caused in such a short amount of time. And it just gives him this resolve to do whatever it takes to take it down. And, and like, even before the, um, he, he and Amro fly out, like there's that one brief scene where he's in his fighter and he sees 
these Xeon soldiers that they're not even in mobile suits, you know, like they're being towed by a cable through space, super vulnerable, you know, like the mobile suit, the Zaku that's towing them, it can't really fight while it's holding them. And he, instead of, you know, taking a shot, he just says, yeah, I can't, I can't do that. And he just ignores them. Yeah. Yeah. It's the other thing that I'd mentioned is, I feel like cartoon or the anime came out substantially earlier than these books, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. they did have a chance to kind of to, to fine tune the character. Granted, true, true. Uh, the character isn't. There's definitely a passage of time between when these books came out and where we are now, and you know, even in that brief period of time attitudes have changed what is acceptable and what is not mm-hmm. so um so even even at this point in our reading of it we you can say that it's already kind of a little behind the, the times in terms of you know what what's progressive what's yeah uh, acceptable, but I, I I do think that even based on what we do have, and you know me being someone who hasn't even seen the show, like this version of Slugger is that that element of him as you know kind of again this alpha like heroic figure. Like it's still there, but I do imagine that they cleaned him up so mm-hmm. that to whatever degree he's not quite as much of a character caricature, and it does focus more on, like you said, the nobler aspects of his character. Yeah, and like you were saying, people are complex. They are. They are. Uh, I feel like um, Slugger can, like, I feel like in another story, Slugger, the Slugger archetype could end up being that character that is this, you know, hardened, experienced veteran soldier who knows how to fight and follow orders and stuff, and he joins the hero's side. But because the hero isn't as assertive as he is he kind of treats the he looks down on the hero and you know maybe even bullies him or something i feel like that's kind of a common archetype that we often see in in various types of stories so i also so that's why i thought that the way that he was portrayed in the manga where he actually respects amuro and like he has a lot of respect for him actually i think that's pretty fascinating like he's not some guy who looks down on amuro because amuro's he doesn't, because Amro doesn't act, you know, macho or assertive like, like an experienced soldier does. But yet Slugger sees what he has done and been through and treats him with a lot of respect. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like archetypes that tend to play off each other are when when you think of. Uh, you know these these stories with uh, these big casts 
what you have is the younger, inexperienced maid, and then um, there's always this one other character who's clearly just more talented and together. And it's like you said, the 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 route that they tend to go is this other character tends to look down on the maid, but mm-hmm. then they guess they have a moment or something, and then they come to a mutual respect sort of moment between the two of them. Yeah. You know, this kind of love-hate. And that's that's generally the kind of route that we go. But it's you're right. It's interesting to not get that with Slugger and Amuro. Um, he... I don't know. I don't know if he... Did you say that he takes Amuro under his... I don't really feel like he took Amro under his wing, but yeah. I think what's fascinating to me is that after this battle, it feels like his death actually has shaken Amro again. Yeah. Whereas when he was alive, you know, they were allies and stuff, and, uh, you know, they had a trust with each other on the battlefield, and Amro trusted him, yeah. but it, it didn't really feel like. He, uh, you know, went to Slugger for advice or, or things like that. Yeah. It's just one of those things where I think for for some reason, I guess Slugger just saw that Amro was really good at what he does yeah. and, you know, treated him with all the respect that an ace soldier receives. So, uh, and yet Amro, it doesn't really feel like he spent too much time thinking about Slugger or anything until after he died. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, I was going to say it's... It might be a situation where... You're right. He he didn't necessarily go to to Slugger for advice or whatever, but just just him treating him that way was kind of enough you know yeah just being able to just knowing that this guy that you respect views you and treats you you know as as a peer is yeah yeah exactly i'm looking at the scene here after after i'm goes back to base you know and we talked a, about how the earlier sections of this book he's he's really trying to play it off like he's this you know old it's cool detached guy soldier. yeah yeah he's detached he's he's just kind of badass now he's like i've seen war and i'm ready for it and i know that you know this is what it takes but when you see him after slagger dies he is messed up, you know? Yeah. Like, I, and I don't just mean, like, his wounds. Like, he's... There's something in him that's... That's damaged a little, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely hurt by that. Yeah. But it, it again, goes back to the idea that he wasn't... Maybe that was all an act, and he wasn't nearly as 
holes and detached as he'd led us all to believe he was. Mm-hmm. I agree. You ready for the next section? Yeah. Let's do it. Section 8. At Zeon's headquarters, Girin stands before Degwin Zabi, who blames him for Dozel's death. Girin plays off the loss of Solomon and shares his battle plan. He is extremely confident that the Federation is playing into his hands. Degwin reluctantly signs his approval of Girin's plan, but has a meaningful conversation with his eldest son. He asks Girin what he will do after defeating the Federation, and Girin says, I'm just going to quote him at this point, On that point, my policy is as firm as it can be. The population has been culled. I take advantage of that and keep it there, retaining just the superior types, so that man may exist for eternity and so as not to sully Earth space. (laughs) And at that point, Degwin compares his own son to Hitler. The public school system of the Universal Century must have failed Garen Zabi because he completely misses the point. Yeah. <laughs> Total side note, this reminds me of the time I was talking with one of my buddies and I uh, compared him to Heinrich Himmler. You want to hear the story, Albert? Sure. <laughs> I definitely want to hear this story. <laughs> <laughs> so, I forget exactly how we got on the subject, but I think he asked me if there was anyone famous that that uh, he reminded me of. And I just said Heinrich Himmler <laughs> as a joke. It was just the first name that came to mind that, you know, would be absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And then uh, so I said that and then he apparently uh, took me at face value and then looked up Heinrich Himmler to, you know, figure out what he was all about. And you know what my friend said to me? What? Can you guess? He was like, huh. This guy believed so strongly in his cause and had such a strong conviction that he was willing to die for his beliefs. You must think pretty highly of me, man. Thanks. Uh. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Was he being sarcastic or was that sincere? Was that a sincere response? <laughs> <laughs> I I assume that he was being sarcastic. Okay. But I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you made me cough. <laughs> oh jeez, that is uh, yeah, that that yeah that. If if he said it with a a straight face, I'd be afraid to ask too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. we really get to see. I mean, I'm pretty sure we all knew what Garen was about, but in this moment, it's yeah, it's explicit. It's, yeah, exactly. Like Hitler doesn't get thrown around a lot in this book. Uh, I think there was. Might be only one other time that he was mentioned, but yeah, when they mentioned it here, it was yeah, it it wasn't even like a historical reference or or anything like that. It, he might as well have just been saying, 
hey, you're you're kind of being Hitlerish right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Your Hitler is showing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let me finish the summary of the rest of the chapter. Shar and Lala meet Cassilia aboard her ship and observe the Federation's current activities. They've taken over Solomon as they prepare for their next move. Cassilia asks Shar to lend her his ship so that she can travel freely as her own flagship is far too noticeable. Meanwhile, Whitebase is having Amro run a test of the Gundam's new core block system. He's distracted, though, thinking about Slugger's death. Bright, as usual, is exasperated. It's a survivability improvement test that all gym pilots have completed, and Amro scoffs at the idea of survivability. He questions who exactly is concerned about the pilot's survivability. Mirai enters the bridge, and Sela, over the comms, wisely asks Amro to drop the subject of Slegger. Amro finally completes the test, but moments later, he... Mirai and Sela all feel some kind of psychic pressure. It sounds like Lala. Sela tells Amro he's in danger and to get back to the Gundam. Okay, we can go back to our uh, Hitler moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that entire exchange between uh, Guerin and... Uh, Degwin. Degwin. It's... I don't know. It it's a tough place to be because he he essentially is telling him that it didn't end well for Hitler, and you he he calls him basic. He says you are Hitler's tail end thing. At least as I read it, he's saying that you're you're the natural extension of what the ideology of hitler ends up becoming right mm-hmm. we follow that to its natural conclusion that is what you are the 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 final form hitler hitler mm-hmm. is, uh evolved state yeah <laughs> if hitler was the pokemon <laughs> you know how pokemon can only say their own name over and over <laughs> imagining him saying Hitler over and over again. But it's it's not a moment where he he's saying it as as praise, you know, and, and especially since he knows the historical context of it. But at the same time, uh you know, Degwin he's He's, I don't know. He's he's still he's not stopping his son, right? Yeah, he's not. And he's still. I don't know if I, I he's at the point where he's still encouraging him to continue to be this way, but at, at this point, not stopping him, you might as well be encouraging him, right? Yeah, it it feels like Degwin calling his son Hitler 
is his it, it's like a f- he's futilely trying to get Garen to think about what he's doing but like hey you remember that horrible monster from history that yeah ended up killing a whole lot of people only to he himself get killed you might yeah want to rethink what you're doing exactly exactly like it's it's funny to think about it from this perspective but it just seems that when he's talking to his son he's being too subtle calling him hitler (laughs) (laughs) it's like garen completely misses the point of the message yeah yeah and at the end of it Degwin just realizes that nothing he can say or nothing that he has said has really changed anything. Like, even Guren's entire response was, yeah, I think I remember this Hitler guy. <laughs> like, Yeah, he doubled down. Yeah. He, uh, he was unmoved by the comparison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, if I had a kid like that, at, at that point, I'd just be like, yeah, you're a lost cause, man. <laughs> like, no, no matter if you are my child, at that point, it's just, what do you do with that? I don't know, man. That's, yeah, it, it reminds me of reading those human interest news articles about people whose children have grown up and become part of, you know, like a nationalist movement or yeah or a kkk member and stuff like that yeah you just can't you can't really reach them anymore because like so many of those stories are they have so much similarities in in how these parents of these uh people who grew up to be like part of a hate group like anytime they try to have a conversation with their child um you know nothing really works because this this uh, person has just completely given in to kooky conspiracy theories or just, uh, you know, racist ideology. And nothing you say can really shake them from their way, even if you uh, give them statistics about things or, you know, explain stuff. Like, it doesn't really matter how you approach them because they're just going to believe what they believe. And that's just how it is. And it, it's like a helpless feeling as somebody... Uh, you know, who loves that person and raised that person, but now that person has become just this hateful creature. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a tough position to be in as 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 a parent of someone falling down that rabbit hole. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I have no idea how this this ends up. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to discuss in this chapter? Um, there was something that had struck me earlier, uh, just a comparison that I was going to make, where when you're watching, when you were talking about how um, Amuro just kind of in this place uh, after Slugger's death, where you know. I guess he's he's emotionally distraught. Um, I'm I, I was thinking of 
what he was trying to pull off earlier, how he was trying to be, you know, kind of aloof and kind of detached mm-hmm. from things. And mm-hmm. it reminded me of, of Evangelion to some degree, where I think there was this one episode where Shinji ends up... Well, okay, so there's there's this one point in, in the series where Shinji begins to get, like, confident about being a pilot. Yeah. Then, you know, when you see how the rest of the series goes and how he ends up being detached from everything... It it all like there was a lot of uh, Evangelion vibes that I was getting from reading this particular uh, volume, you know. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, there's there's something fascinating and compelling about the psychological impact that all these events are having on what is still a teenage boy. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And oh, it's uh, it's 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 that whole uh, what's it called? It's the whole phenomena of child soldiers and stories where mm-hmm. it, you know these young uh, young men and women who are still mentally developing are put through the ringer terms of just the situations that they're having to deal with and to know how crazy that ends up making you, you know? Yeah. Shall we move on? Yeah. Okay. Section 9. Picking up immediately where we left off, one of the Federation's Magellan-class ships patrolling by the outskirts of Solomon explodes. They're under attack and bright calls off the test. Amro feels like he hears a voice. It's got to be Lala. She's piloting her Elmith mobile armor, essentially conducting a test of her own, while Shar observes in his Gelgoog. Meanwhile, in the bowels of Solomon, which the Federation has now renamed Fort Confeto, Revel arrives in his flagship. As he disembarks, there is much pomp and circumstance, as a military band plays some fanfare for him. White Base also docks inside Solomon to far less fanfare. But more importantly, the crew gets a chance to rest from their ordeals, with many of them looking forward to taking a bath at the Xeon Spa. Amuro isn't interested, though, and stays in his room, realizing that he sensed Lala's presence out there in space. Revel holds a strategy meeting with other Federation leaders as they plan their next assault. Wright arrives partway through the meeting, as White Base will be part of the fleet laying siege to a Bawa coup. Revel's plan is called Operation Star One, and he sees it as the end of the war, and perhaps as the way to usher in the age of new types, an age when there will be no more war. Just when we think there's time for our heroes to have a respite, the Elmeth strikes again using new type weaponry to destroy more Federation ships anchored outside of Solomon. Amro immediately launches in the Gundam before Bright can even return to the ship and issue orders. What you think, Albert?
honestly, I'm still kind of caught up on Taylor's boobs. But. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very surprising scene. Yeah. <laughs> it was. I mean, you didn't mention it in your summary, but it was just a thing where. Like, it was, was gratuitous. Very, yeah, a little bit. I mean. It it does make me wonder, like it it's so random that it makes me wonder if they're they were trying to communicate something with it. But sure, you know, it reminds me of how in the theatrical edition of First Gundam, yeah, in the third movie, there's a very similar scene. Yeah, like at this point, Gundam was already becoming a phenomenon in Japan, and in the third movie, there's actually a shower scene with Sela that was not in the TV series. It was new animation for the movie. And it's, from what I remember, it's pretty short. But the fact that it was a shower scene and she was naked in it and on screen, on screen nudity, a lot of fanboys ended up like making a big deal out of it to the <laughs> point where there are stories from that, you know, from, you know, from the early 80s about people you know, lining up to watch the movie again, but they would bring cameras with them so they could take photos of the movie screen <laughs> when she was taking a shower. Wow. Like, that was a thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, uh, right? <laughs> people will never change. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so, it's so silly. It's super silly. But yeah, maybe maybe that... Uh, maybe the nudity in this chapter is meant to like be a reference to the shower scene in the movie. Okay. <laughs> That's the only reason I can think of. I mean, yeah. it, there's really no other reason for him to have drawn that. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, other than to titillate you. <laughs> other than that... Um... Yeah, I mean, what we're basically getting out of this section is just the discussion about the new types and watching as, um, you know, all of the Federation forces are... Strategizing? Well, I was going to say, you know, reveling in the, the, the oils of war. You know? Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> you know, they're, they've taken up uh, refuge in this giant station or this fortress Solomon that they've just taken over. So, you know, all in all, it's, yeah, I don't think there's really too much going on here. Uh, there's Amuro, uh, you know, getting these psychic communiques from Lala. That's, that's a kind of a big thing that's happening here. Mm-hmm. So, like, it does really feel like the the conversation around new types in this uh, volume is, you know, it's kind of becoming more prominent as they incorporate new types into their actual battle strategies. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't don't know how. It doesn't feel like new types as as a thing is very prominent in their world. Like, they're still just on the cusp of understanding what new types are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for them to 
so quickly incorporate it into their strategies. Like, I guess it, it, it's in line with what we were saying about how, you know, the innovation of war in this volume really does focus around every advantage that they can get for themselves. Uh, and it even translates to the, this new species of of humans that they're going to use against their enemies. Yeah. Yeah, that's all I really got on section. Yeah, that in Sela's breasts. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously. <laughs> uh, I I I'm 13 apparently. <laughs> <laughs> when you paused earlier, I I was I I thought that we got disconnected from our call. So when you answered, uh, that was a pretty funny moment, man. I got to say, your your timing was impeccable. <laughs> I really wanted to set it up. I was really priming the pump on that. <laughs> <laughs> I went from thinking, oh, what's he what's he thinking about? What's he going to say? And then I went to, wait, did he get disconnected? And then I went to, oh, man, he said that. <laughs> uh, hey, we're, we're all about exploring all avenues of the human emotional spectrum and that includes the very primal sense of lust that i have <laughs> <laughs> all right the final section section 10 in what is probably the longest extended color sequence in the entire manga so far we see that Lala continues to lay waste to Federation ships as Shara looks on. Somehow, Amro manages to find her in the vastness of space, and the Gundam and Elmeth are face to face. Amro and Lala both sense each other and communicate their recognition. Amro doesn't want to fight her, but Lala says it's fate. Shara arrives, and now his Gelgug is face to face with the Gundam. Shar tells Amro he should join forces with him and Lala, that he's really Kasval Rem Dakin, that he swore vengeance against the Zabis, and that he plans to usher in the age of new types. He goes on to explain his philosophy, but Amro tells him that whatever Shar is, he's not a new type himself. Shar tells Amro that he's not rattled, and Lala urges Amro to consider Shar's words as they depart without firing a shot. Cassilia, traveling incognito in Shar's flagship, arrives at Side 3, Zeon's colony, and sees that one of the colony cylinders there is being converted into a giant laser. In disguise, she sneaks into Zoom City, the Zeon capital, and meets with her father, Degwin. He begs her to get rid of Girin and tells her that he'll meet with Revel and sue for peace. 
Cassilia tells him that if he truly wants peace, he must leave now before the battle begins. Degwin takes her advice. However, unbeknownst to him, she also sends a secret message to Girin informing him of their father's whereabouts. All right, just really two scenes in this chapter, but they're both pretty big, meaningful scenes. Yeah. There's uh, the confrontation between Amro and Shar, where, like you were saying, he goes into his entire treatise, treatise about how new types are going to be the hot new thing, and uh, you know, anytime anyone goes out there and discusses about how there's a chosen people like that, <laughs> it is not a good good direction for that conversation to go. I, I was with him when he said he swore vengeance on House Zabi, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but then once he started saying, "We're gonna, we're gonna rise above the old types. Join me." <laughs> There was something funny, or I, I I don't know if I'm reading into it too much, but there's something funny about how Amro has that moment and says, you're not even a new type. And, you know, Shar has that realization that even though he's all about this master race uh, of, of, of people, like, it's it's a weird position for him to take even though he's not he's not of the master race right and it just got me thinking about how it was always again you know this this talk of hitler and how he had all this stuff to say about the aryan race and its superiority but at the end of the day dude was an aryan uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I'm remembering this right, but he, he might have even been Jewish, right? Or like some Hitler. Yep. Maybe that's one of those uh, rumors. Yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. I I'd have to look it up. That might that might just be one of those uh, conspiracy something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But uh yeah. Um it's 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 a weird position for Shar to take. But I don't know. He he clearly sees some sort of position for himself in this new world order where, you know, the the new types are gonna usher in next age of uh, humanity mm -hmm. and I guess they're going to keep him as their administrative assistant or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what his role in this new world is if he's not a new type. <laughs> um, Do you think Amro said that to uh, try to rattle him or do you think that he was just it's genuine. Like, do you think Shar is a new type or not? He has a 
hasn't exhibited any new type of powers up to this point, has he? Like, he's naturally talented and gifted at a bunch of stuff, but I don't know if actually shown that he has the powers that new types have. Mm-hmm. I'm asking. I think you're right. I'm trying to think back to the earlier volumes, and I I can't think of anything on the page that indicated some kind of uh, new type ability. Like, I, f- I mean, it's possible that there is that I'm just forgetting, but nothing. You're right. Nothing really comes to mind. Whereas with with Amra, we've already had a couple volumes where there are like brief panels where he just senses something is happening. And like that's enough for him to take action. Like I think back to a, a, a couple volumes ago when they were still on Earth and he sensed uh, that uh, during the battle, I think it was uh, the Battle of Odessa, he sensed that Makave was about to use nukes. And that, that was a total new type flash kind of thing you know like he no one gave him the intel or anything it was just like a psychic instinct or something but I I can't really think of anything like that with Char so far unless there's something I'm forgetting yeah I, I do think both those things could be true though in the sense that Amuro was I do think he was trying to rattle him, but I do also think that there's something about that realization, that realization that he's calling out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I'll have to see how it plays out, but as of right now, like, it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, again, like, it doesn't other than, I guess, Char's dedication to the the purity of this new race, like, in spite of the fact that he's clearly not one of them. But, yeah. Uh, the other scene that was a big scene in the book was the scene between Casilla and uh, Degwin, where... Mm-hmm. You know, we finally get the build-up to finally get to the point where Degwin's Degwin's kind of over it, and he's going to try to bring all this to a conclusion. Uh, you know, they, they're they literally converting one of the space colonies into a giant space laser. Yeah. I imagine that's going to kill a whole lot of people. <clears throat> You know, if it hasn't already, right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, this might be an example of it being too little, too little, too late. Where, as he goes off, as Degwin goes off to try to, you know, bring, bring an end to this entire conflict, Casilla's over here plotting, and 
I think it's fair to say that she's willing to get rid of Degwin if it means that she can get what she wants, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's still doing her political she's machinations. Yeah, she's still committed to winning the war. Um, on, on her, her terms. terms. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a heck of a way to end the book. I think we always knew that Casilla and uh, Giran were bad, so I guess it's not that much of a surprise that they would try to kill their own dad. Yeah. 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 It, it's and there's still the rivalry, or not even rival, the tension or antagonism between. Her and Giran as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It so it's like seems like even if they win this war and they get rid of uh, yeah, what's 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 inevitable is they're probably going to end up trying to destroy each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And and it's almost to the point where. Even if they get, you know, even if one of them ends up victorious, like the rest of their existence is just going to be spent shooting out uh, their potential enemies. Yeah. Yeah. Just an indicator of just the awful type of people that these two are. Yeah. <clears throat> totally, totally power hungry. And conniving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a heck of a way to end the book. Uh, you know, quite quite the cliffhanger. I also wanted to ask you what your thoughts are on Lala in this volume. Because she's obviously a really big presence in these latter chapters of the book. But it doesn't really feel like she says or does too much other than destroy some ships and you know, make some cryptic statements to Amaro. Yeah, it, she's kind of a MacGuffin in the in the this volume, whole, right? Like, mm-hmm. kind of just bring her around as this example of what a new type is. Yeah, what a new type can do, but beyond that, she doesn't really guess contribute much to the discussion. Right? It's like all we really know is that she's an extremely powerful new type and her presence just draws Amro to her. Yeah, yeah. And and uh you know in the previous chapter even uh Mirai and, and Sela felt something when she yeah. was calling out. So it's it's yeah, it just feels like she's got a lot more new type ability than just about anybody else we've encountered. Yeah. But we haven't really seen, like other than her using the weapons to destroy those ships, it just kind of feels like she's Char's toy or something. Yeah. Well, it's like I was saying, she's just a MacGuffin. Yeah, or a cipher. Yeah. I mean, albeit she talks and she has... Theoretically, she has agency, but not 
really being exhibited. Yeah. It's like whatever agency she is capable of, she decided to just follow Shar because he saved her that one time back on Earth years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it's it's a it's weird to ask because you you've obviously read the series, so you know you you have knowledge of where they go with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas I haven't, and I'm just kind of taking it all in as it's happening. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I guess it's it's the only sort of thing where I can only wait and see how the next two volumes play out in order to really determine, you know, what her what her role is and mm-hmm. whether she's gonna have a bigger part to play. I mean, she's obviously gonna have a bigger part to play. Yeah. Just just by existing, but beyond yeah. just being this thing that they can kind of out as an indicator of like what new types are right yeah okay any uh final thoughts or anything else you want to say before we wrap things up oh it's uh it's a, a good volume it's pretty action-packed but you know we lost some good people in this too uh so uh we still have two more volumes to go and a lot of characters that are still alive for now, so yeah. time will tell who makes it. Who will live? Who will die? <laughs> Tune in next month to Between the Gutters. <laughs> but before we get to that point next month, we do have more episodes in the weeks between. And next week, we are going to be discussing... A Marvel comic from a few years ago. We we're going to be reading Fury, My War Gone By by Garth Ennis and Garan Parlov. Uh, if you guys have any questions, feel free to hit us up on Between the Gutters podcast at gmail.com or if you want to hit us up on our Instagram at Between the Gutters. Uh, you know, hit us up in, in our DMs and uh, or you can tweet at us at Between the Gutters. And we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can like us on whatever platform you're listening to us on. That would help as well. You know, if you can rate us five stars, the highest rating is. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time. Peace.